What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. Well, and I think one of the most difficult things and is exactly what you just pointed out is audio and audio not coming out correctly, not coming out at the right volume. Yeah, I mean, with filming, I found that nothing defines the quality of the film more than audio. Uh-huh. And it's the hardest thing, and it's the thing we think about the least and we're never worried about. Like, yeah. We're not going after audio, we're going after footage. Right. But one of the things that I use to test my video is, is turning off one of the key ingredients so I just turn off the audio or I'll turn off the visual and I'll check the sound and I'll check the music and or I'll turn off the music and watch the video and do I still get that same feeling of what I'm trying to convey you know just by the audio or just by the visual just by one of those yeah and so a lot of times if I turn off the audio I'm like yeah the video looks good but then if I turn it on and it's good audio it's a lot better mm-hmm. and then if I was to turn off the video and I have crappy audio then it's not acceptable right so maybe I need to get more in that frame of mind when yeah. I I mean a large a large portion of why audio went down for two episodes terribly was switching to this new device and then understanding exactly how this works and then how it downgrades when you upload it and and the whole ball of wax but i've also been extremely um i like it raw so when i fuck up i am not a big proponent of editing out my own fuck up or editing out or trying to edit the audio quality like if I screw up I'll leave it and I'll let it go the way that it came out raw yeah because I would much rather own my mistakes than try to live in some fabricated edited world that's not reality I think there's there's, that's just with the podcast that's just with the you know what I'm saying But like, I, I kind of like that raw feeling because then when 50 and 60, 70 people hit me up and they're like, dude, your audio was fucked. Yeah. And then I'm like, all right, I well, need to work like, on something and figure this out. When you look at the analytics of videos on YouTube, it's interesting how mm-hmm. the terrible shaky footage that was done off someone's phone gets more hits than the guy with the $20,000 camera. Blair Witch Project. Yeah. $500,000 budget multi-million dollar film back when you could make money doing motion pictures but perfect example of a handy cam ruling the day (laughs) on raw footage right i mean mind you that film was probably still edited to the maximum and yeah so i I find that there's like moments in the video where that content needs to live Mm -hmm. when when it needs to feel real raw yeah and just put in that cheap footage. Switch <laughs> to the cheap camera. Switch to the iPhone footage. Because it footage. gives that sensation of being with them, of it being real. And So yeah, I think um, audio is the one thing that everybody forgets about, but it's often the most important. Yeah. 
Well, I listened to one of my buddy's podcasts, and he and I are completely different on parallels of quality audio and all of his audio. He's so, I, I just did a podcast with him recently, and, and he's so picky about how perfect his audio has to be. And I'm just like, I don't have the time to deal with that shit. Like, cause for me, I'm like, you know, you're going to get what you get and, and, and this is how it is. And he is like, my audio has to be so flawless that you can never even notice it. And it sounds so great, but I get it. I totally get it after having to deal with so many complaints right. <laughs> in two episodes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you get, you get, you know, I mean, some people also do um, the video podcast, and then they have mm-hmm. both. So then you're picking up the audio off of your Canon or Nikon or Sony or whatever. Um, and if, if you screw up, you, you always have the audio from there also. So yeah. if this one doesn't work, then you're pulling the audio off that. And you have mics recording from everywhere. Yeah, I mean, you have internal mics. I mean, I've had situations where I knew I could only get audio once, and I'd actually set up a GoPro on a table. Didn't matter if it was face up, face down. I'm not pulling the video off of it. But it, it actually gets pretty decent audio. So I'd set that down. I'd set my big camera up, and then I'd also set up a Zoom. Really? Yeah, three. Really? Because imagine if, if like, how many times have you heard guys on podcasts say, I forgot to hit record. That's the most terrifying thing on the planet. Yeah, it's unacceptable. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah, so much good like organic content came out. Then when you have to redo it, it's just never the same. Yeah. The first time's always the best. I. That's uh, funny you bring that up. I had a podcast I did with a guy a while back. And the first 25 minutes was just organic conversation, us getting fired up and, and you know, putting putting the kindling on the fire, I guess you could say. And 25 minutes into it, I realized that it hadn't recorded any of our fire-up conversation. And for me, the fire-up conversation is like a big baseline. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's you know, for me, I really, really enjoy that. And it was, you just can't recreate that first 25 minutes of amazing and epic conversation about everything. But I think there's a valuable lesson there that goes beyond podcasts and it goes beyond audio recording and making good content, but it's just that life doesn't come twice. Ever. It's just once. And mm-hmm. you know, I think that's why hunting is so great. You get that one opportunity mm-hmm. and sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not. Um, it's just, it reemphasizes the value of every day, every moment, right? every experience, every conversation, every decision. They're all so valuable. Yeah. And that's where I'm at right now as far as every experience. I am doing everything I can to get in on every single experience that I can um, in trying to grow the podcast and trying to grow Legion DIY as its own entity and its own company and its own project. Um, And... I'll look back on like the last month and a half of my life, tule elk hunts, sheep hunts, living at 12,500 feet, insane, epic adventures, you know, and then rolling into my own hunt and killing a monster fork at horn buck, which was like, that's a bucket list buck for me. And rolling into all of that and, and doing all that, and my mentality right now is like, I only live once. 
I'm never going to get the opportunity in my life to do what I'm doing right now again. Maybe in a different respect, I will. I think it's a great segue into what I've been doing with freediving because mm -hmm. in freediving, you're taking an entire experience and putting it into one breath. Yeah. So just imagine if, like with freediving, okay, you have one breath. You're going to make this dive. Let's say you're going 100 feet and you're going to shoot this fish of a lifetime. You'll free dive down to 100 feet. Yeah, so we go beyond. <laughs> okay, so we're going to dive into all this. First, tell us who you are. Tell us what, you, what you're doing. I mean, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. And, yeah. and we'll dive into free diving. Okay. So uh, my name is Dan Silvera, and I like to identify most with my success in spearfishing and why I love to do it and my work as a wildlife cinematographer for the past seven years. Um, I spearfish because of one secret hidden reason that a lot of people don't always understand, but it's because I really love to cook and I love to eat and the best ingredients are gonna be fresh and I wanna go out and select them. So while I might have a national spearfishing title and multiple world records. Wait, what? Yeah. I, I didn't even know that. So, yeah. <laughs> so okay, okay. So um, I'm a national spearfishing champion. I won in 2012 in Albion, but I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about competitions because in my view, yeah. fish are not points. Fish are something beautiful that um, are fun and exciting to see and to be with, but also can taste really delicious and um, they're really easy to digest and it's, it's a great source of protein. Well, and fish also, vegetarians, there's a lot of vegetarians pescatarians. or pescatarians, yeah. whatever you call it. Um, they're okay with eating fish, but they won't eat any other meats. Yeah, we'll have to dive back into that. Okay. And, and talk about my opinions um, on, on the value of life. But going back to the point here where the fish are not points. And so while I do have those titles, um, they just help springboard me into another class of opportunity. And so then when I tell people, hey, I'm really good at spearfishing, I'd like to do a TV show, they don't question it. I can just tell them, okay, I've been a national champion and I've yeah. had world records. So then it immediately, it's like once you hold up that paper, they believe you. Um, but it's like validity. It's, it's just giving a solid backing to anything that you're saying about your sport. Yep, exactly. Um, I started spearfishing when I was seven. I'm 34 now. I didn't really get serious about it until maybe 2008, 2009, where uh, I started competing. And uh, I, don't, I don't really enjoy losing. Um, first competition I went to, I won. It was, it was kind of by mistake almost. Um, it was a rough day. And, I think everyone was having a tough time, but I did good. And what'd you shoot? Uh, it was up on the North Coast, so I was shooting rockfish and link cod. Um, they're not really the hardest fish to get, but you really need to understand <clears> the <throat> terrain. We'll get back into talking about uh, underwater terrain, of fish, underwater species terrain of fish, and why they're there, and how to get your fish. Okay. Um, but my dad is from the Azores, which is a small group of nine islands that's located uh, in the middle of the United States and the Azores, so, I mean, and Portugal. So it's a, it's a Portuguese-controlled set of islands. So it's, it's um, my dad's Portuguese, and he started me off when I was seven. 
diving there, warmer water. It's kind of like Southern California water, maybe 65 degrees. And nice, way better than up here. As far back as we know, on that side of my family, was all, my, all my family was fishermen and whalers. Really? Yeah, so it's, it's been wild as a wildlife cinematographer to come back and, and be filming Moby Dick and the sperm whales, whereas my ancestors were killing them. Uh-huh. You know, it's just... Full I'm circle. Sure they're, they're up in the heavens looking down saying, this is wonderful, you know? That, yeah. That now he, he doesn't have to kill them. Well, whales in, the, in themselves are magnificent they're creatures. They're so freaking intelligent. It's insane. It's insane. So yeah. the scientists are discovering that the language behind how a whale understands life is such that everything's done through their echolocation and through sound. So they see by hearing. And so it, they can send those same sounds to you and you will understand that perfect vicarious experience. Imagine if I can give you an instant download of my hunt yeah, or, or my life or my experience or what I felt with someone. And so we were in Dominica under a research permit, permit and, and these whales were coming up to us and only one would come up at a time. And they do all these clicks and, and they're identifying you. They're counting the number of bones in your body. They're figuring out your heartbeat. And they're, they're painting this picture. All based off of sonar. On you. Yeah, they're taking the energy right out of you. That's so insane. And then they're going back down to several hundred feet and meeting with the pod and then expressing what they felt about you to the pod. And then the pod is, is having a meeting and they're deciding on whether they all want to come up and play with you. Yeah. That's so and, crazy. And they all know the same experience that that one whale had. And so their language is so far complex that we can't even comprehend it. They're well, so intelligent. And it, it makes me think, too, when my uncle has told me stories about when they were first discovering, recording the sounds of whales underneath the ocean, and when they were discovering what bubble netting worked, or how bubble netting works and the structure of the pod. I mean, whales, to me, the... I guess exactly what you're saying, the amount of intelligence that whales have. And I didn't know that it went as far as what you're describing right now, but that's just insane. Yeah. And, you know, I've had time in Tonga as well, diving with humpback whales and being able to have these beautiful, close interactions with mother, calf and male escort and just all coming up and hanging out with me. In fact, Patagonia ended up purchasing... Um, one of the most beautiful photos of my boss, Edmund Jin, and, and Kimmy Warner, who's an amazing diver. And, and they're both ascending from the depths in this beautiful golden kind of purple light. And the mother and the calf is there, and, and Edmund and Kimmy are there, and they're coming up. It's just incredible. It was in their surf catalog a couple of years ago. I think they used it on a billboard. They used it in multiple, spot, multiple places. Really? What depth was that photo taken at? It was shallow. Really? Yeah. I mean, I was a little bit above them, so I was maybe at like 15 feet. Perfect refraction of light through the water. It was incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what time? I got to know what time of day was it? It was or evening. Was yeah. it? I mean, I, I don't like shooting photos in the water until that beautiful light comes. I mean, it affects underwater. The crisp, too. perfect. It's, it's just dynamic. Yeah. You get more shadows. You get more color. The depth of field and everything yeah. is amazing. Yeah, things change in the mornings and the evenings. Yeah. So, yeah, I've had this amazing career in freediving. I've taught freediving classes, became an instructor for Freediving Instructors International. I got to do a lot of traveling 
And at one point, I was working at a dive shop where you know, I became a scuba instructor. It wasn't the Bamboo Reef, was it? No, it was, uh, <laughs> Wall- yeah, Wallens Dive Center uh-huh. um, in San Carlos. So I had the opportunity to start traveling and taking people on adventures. And my, my boss at the time, David Laird, uh, he was an avid photographer and yeah. spear fisherman. So he kind of took me under his wing and introduced me to the world of photography. Um, jumping forward a little bit in my life, I also have a couple college degrees in business and marketing, and I love the whole side of sales and what drives people to make purchases and the psychology behind it and um, how influence of marketing affects people. And, um, you know, I also learned that there's two state of minds, you know, either analytical or emotional. And when people are purchasing, there's no, nothing funner than being emotional. Like purchase. <laughs> and so eventually I got um, an opportunity from YouTube from a company called Page Productions, which they became famous for making a TV show with Guy Fieri called uh, Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. And they, they got a hold of me and said, hey, you know, we like what you're doing on YouTube. Would you be interested in helping us with um, a show on the North Coast about abalone. We got to talking and they say, you are the show. We want a show on you. This no is cool. way. Like, what you're doing is amazing. You're traveling the world. You're doing all this amazing stuff. You love cooking. And so we were going to make a, a show called Food Quest. And it was going around the world, learning about different types of food, primitive styles of hunting versus tradi- you know, some of the more modern ways. Jumping forward again, I was on a dive down at Jade Cove, this beautiful place down in Big Sur where people find these big chunks of jade. It, it also happens to be a very remote area and pretty decent for spearfishing. So I was down there with um, my now boss and he was asking me what I was doing with my life. I explained the situation and a few months later we were sitting down with a napkin talking about ideas on how we could incorporate it into his business. And in April of 2012 we signed a contract and we were filming with Page Productions. We made a 12 uh, TV show, 12 episode TV show that ended up getting sold in China to CTTV under Discovery Channel. No way. Yep. And um, I think that the show could have been done better. Um, you know, when you take a company that makes videos on food and then has to go do reality TV, they don't get it. So they're like, oh, here's a set of lines for you. No, no, no. Lines don't happen in reality. Reality TV needs to stay reality. So we had a little bit of conflict there, and we decided from that point on we needed our own crew. So we started building the inside house, and so did the journey of trying to learn about this wild world of filming and editing and trying to make good content. And it's really hard. It is. <laughs> so anyone out there, and it's getting more difficult because I feel like there's been such a flood of quote organic content for the last year and a half, maybe two years. Maybe longer than that than I've noticed, but and, or reality content, I guess you could say if you want. And it's getting more and more difficult. I feel like in having created a lot of organic or reality content to continue to create it because it's getting exhausted and more exhausted and more exhausted the further it goes. Yeah, and, and maybe the reason why it's getting exhausted is people are trying to copy. They're not being original. If you just be you, yeah, that's as authentic as it gets because you're not duplicated anywhere. Yeah. And sometimes trying less is 
more effective. Tr yeah, sometimes yeah, trying less, less, is, less is, yeah, less is more, exactly. Yeah, and, and <laughs> it's, it's, we'll get back to another point on, on what makes a successful spear fisherman, and it, and it has to do with that concept of trying less. Um, so anyways, he ended up having this show. We started our own team in-house, and we also realized that, you know, maybe we don't need a half an hour of content. Maybe five minutes or four minutes or two minutes or one impression, one photo is enough to make an impact. And the big question I'm sure you're wondering and everyone's wondering is, what was that for? Well, he owns a company that makes a lot of products that come into the home. So whether it's sheets, pillows, furniture, wall art, um, cookware, anything that comes in your home. If you bought something, you might have bought it from the company that he runs. But you're, when you're buying a product, whether it's a collection, like let's say you go to Restoration Hardware or Pottery Barn, you like that feel and you want to go in there and buy Pottery Barn stuff. Well, you're relying on a bunch of designers to think and to use their education and to figure out this beautiful collection for you. So when you walk in, you just have the decision of I like or I don't like, I'm going to buy or I'm not going to buy. How does that happen? And how do we avoid fads? You know, we don't want to make products that, ten, you know, a year or two from now, nobody wants anymore. We've all yeah. seen it happen. And so what it comes down to is that nature has always been the only thing that, that defines beauty. Yeah. No, they're good. Okay. So um, if we can go to nature and pull our inspiration from there, whether it's coral or it's palm leaves or it's animals, zebra hide, that's where beauty is gonna be timeless. Mm -hmm. So my job as a wildlife photographer was not only to create content that could be used for marketing and excitement and fun, but it was also to gather all this imagery that can be used to help the design team understand or have that feeling of creating collections that are timeless, that are inspired by nature. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's where my job started. And I was able to combine my passion for diving the outdoors and wildlife with something a little bit more lucrative, which is business and marketing and creating products for people. Yeah. What's that been like? What's that adventure since, since that time you guys sat down and wrote everything out on the napkin and incorporated together on, on what works. What's that adventure been like for you? Getting to have your passion and your love and you know your hobbies and stuff like that actually turn around and become yep. what you're building your life off of. That's funny. I took a, a course in college where the instructor said, I want you to write a biography and as I was writing the biography I was really starting to freak out because a lot of the things I had dreamed of when I was younger were actually in that story how crazy is that and I was shaking I was like this is not this is not possible like <laughs> how can you dream of something and then it just becomes reality and it continuously happened dream big man because all of it is achievable Right, but we don't know when it's going to happen. Or how. Like, okay, we're sitting in a house that I just built. And, and I, you dreamt this house up. 
Yeah, I literally I remember, from the concrete up. Yeah, I remember sitting down with my cousins when I was a kid, like drawing tree houses and, and houses near the ocean. And, and then as I grew up older, my dad, I'm like, how about this property? You know, could we build a house here? And I draw a bunch of sketches and all through high school and then helping him build houses and then eventually building my own house. It's like, I never thought it was possible. And yet here we are with, with, with spearfishing. I never thought it was humanly possible for me to dive to 200 feet. Free dive to 200 breath feet. Of air. Yeah. I never thought it was possible for me to go out with a bow and arrow and shoot a giant elk mm-hmm. or a deer. Like you just don't think it's possible. You want it. I wanted it. Really you want it to happen really bad. Yeah. But I couldn't put a timeline on it. And so going back <clears throat> to your question, how was it? It was surreal. The whole process was surreal. And I remember there was one time in college when I was meeting with a counselor and they're kind of helping me direct the direction of what classes I'm going to take. We did all the personality tests and he'd always asked me about my stories of diving and he just, he told me, he said, don't lose that passion. He said, for some reason, I think everything that you want in life is going to somehow be connected to that. I remember that and, and he was 100% right and everything's happened just because of my love and authenticity. Just be authentically you. Every day you have choices. And the best choice you could make is to be you. And if that choice is, you know, to be sad or to be mad or to be happy, that's okay. As long as you're honest about it. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, I think there's a whole chain reaction of, I mean, call it hippie if you want, but there's a lot of energy in this world that moves around that we don't necessarily understand, but it's real. Like, like this podcast, you yeah. know, it's going to go on to a web and, you know, people are going to listen to it through Bluetooth and or Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi. It's like <laughs> the Wi-Fi. There, there, there's so many wavelengths coming through right now. Yeah. It's passing through you and me. Yeah. Do you feel it? No. Not at all. feel it. But it's real. Like if, if my phone rings right now, which I should make sure is on silent. Oh, me too. <laughs> if my phone rings and I pick up the phone call, that's real, but... I don't know how it's working and I didn't have to feel it coming. It's not like, oh, I think my phone's going to ring in five minutes, <laughs> you know, but it's, it's there, it's coming. And so there's energy in this world that comes to the, tr- the, the energy of thought, the energy of happiness, the energy of what you plan to do. Yeah. And, and somehow the world just moves around that and we've never really understood it. But every other animal in the world gets it. Like... If well, you're scared of a horse and you walk up to it... The horse feels it. They know. And what about a dog? How many times have dogs been used bringing them to the hospital to help heal people? And dogs can even tell if you have like some type of illness sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so then the dog knows if you're happy or sad. And when you're hunting, the deers know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's just... Unless you're a super stealthy hunter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... Right, and that we'll get back to that point. Well... Um, and kind of what you're talking about is like the tune of nature, yeah. right? And and you go way back to Indians or, you know, ancient civilizations and ancient cultures. I feel like they were so much more in tune with body, mind, and spirit and soul than where we're at today. Yeah, well, it makes a lot of sense because it's the only thing that's yours. Mm-hmm. Nothing else is yours. Mm-hmm. You know, none of this is with you when, when you're done here, you know, when you die. At all. But you've owned your body. It's the only thing you owned. All the material items, you don't really own it. Mm-hmm. They could be taken away. Think about all those fires. Yeah. 
think about the Hurricane Dorian that just happened. Everything was taken away. We don't own anything except for our mind and our body. And that's it. Yeah. And we, we should probably think about controlling it. Well, not only controlling it, but doing what's be- understanding it and doing what's best for us as a human being, an individual and a soul, right? And yeah. a being, right? Because if we're not out putting our minds to what puts us at the most ease and comfort, we live in constant discomfort, constant discord, constant chaos. There's no harmony whatsoever. And how do we learn how to get through depressed times? Or how do we learn how to get through difficulty and you know trials and tribulations, I guess? Well, if you don't mind, I'd like to jump into a story of jump where in this it, became man. real to me. Oh, get it. Absolutely. So it's a sad story. And um, I was down in Carmel last year diving. It's one of my favorite places to spearfish. And for those of you getting into spearfishing, I highly recommend it. I've done thousands of dives outside of Pebble Beach Golf Course. <laughs> it's phenomenal. How many golf it's, balls do you find out there? Oh man, my friend has a company that they, they picked up like 50,000 golf balls and they're actually working now with the marine sanctuaries to clean up and make sure that that's not stopping. Happen. Yeah, because it's a lot of plastic going into the ocean. Yeah. And um, so anyways, I was diving in, in Carmel and I had been free diving all morning, filming with, with my boss, Edmund. And then my dad and brother joined me around noontime. And at one point, I wanted to paddle further out. Um, and I remember telling my dad, hey, let, let's paddle to where that Zodiac is. It's, it's a good spot. It's one of my favorites. Actually, um, Clint Eastwood used to own a house near there. And he's, ah, it's too far. You know, you always want to paddle to the end of the earth. Why can't you just dive right here? I'm like, all right, fine. So at the end of the day, I like doing a scuba dive. That's my favorite thing to do. After free diving all day, I go down on scuba and I just kind of unwind. It's my way of relaxing. Um, it's not as intense, not as focused. And I wanted to test out some gear for Aqualung. They had this new BCD called the Outlaw. It's an ultra light uh, BC that's great for kayaking. And you really don't even feel like you're wearing anything. So it's like this extended free diving, you know? So for people that don't know what that is, can you explain really quick what yes. that is? So when you're scuba diving, you've got <coughs> oftentimes, at least in California, since it's pretty cold, you're wearing a wetsuit, which floats. And then you need to wear a lead weight belt, which helps you to sink. And you're going to pick at what point you're going to be neutral. Well, for scuba, you kind of need, when you when you vent your your vest, you need to have enough weight on to start sinking. But once you get down at depth, and as that neoprene compresses, um, you sink faster and faster. So then you'd have to continue to kick to stay afloat. So rather than working that hard, they made a vest that you can wear that you add, add squirts of air into so that it, it raises you off the bottom. So you can f- find that neutral buoyancy and just kind of float like a turtle. At whatever depth. Whatever you're, depth you yeah, want. Yeah. It's comfortable. It just depends on the size of the bladder. Um, but this one, I was, it was the ultra light setup. So it's a 12 pound bladder, really streamlined. You could change it out. So it's great for sailboats, but let's get back into the, you're in Carmel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so thousands of dives over the last 10 years, I've had nothing but great experiences there. 
And I was out on this ledge where I often find myself in the evenings and it's about 110, 120 feet deep. I'm sitting there just observing all the fish and the lingcod, I'm doing some video. I'm not spearfishing, um, just kind of unwinding. I'm, I'm done for the day. And I think because I was so relaxed and I wasn't really focused on anything, I was more open to different things that were passing by. And, and I had a feeling that there was a white shark nearby. Ooh. And I've had this feeling before and I've been right. And I filmed white sharks. I have beautiful photos of white sharks. I've interacted with them several times. I've touched them. I've, my boss rode one. Um, so they have a dominant presence and you don't have to see them to know that they're there. Everyone talks about that sixth sense, but no one really knows if it's real. So I had that feeling, and I could feel it coming from my left to my right as the, as the feeling transitioned. And I was like, I, I, I wanna make sure that I have rock behind me. So I backed myself up into like this corner between two reefs. And not long after, that sensation got way darker. Um, I could feel that something bad had happened. And it's almost like when you have a knot in your throat and you want to cry, mm-hmm. I have that feeling. And it's crazy to have that. I'm on a scuba dive. And, and you're just watching. Feet. I'm not, I'm just, there's nothing in front of me except for fish and rocks. So there's no reason for it to happen. And I was like, okay, this is crazy. I should not be feeling this. There's nothing that's happening in my life that should be causing this. I'm not sad. I'm not depressed. Like there was nothing for that to happen. So I swam offshore a little ways and I said, I'm going to conquer this fear. It's, it's fear. And so I went out into the deeper water and you know, just a few kicks away and I'm just floating there and, and the sensation continued. I said, no, it's, it's real. So I swam into the kelp and I was coming up to do my safety stop at 15 feet and a boat came over the top of me in the kelp. And I was like, wow, maybe that's what I was feeling. You know, it was like, be careful on this dive, something bad might happen. And so I just said, okay, I've, I've done a couple minutes here at my safety stop. I'm getting out of here. What so, is a safety stop? Uh, well, when you're diving, you're absorbing excess nitrogen from breathing compressed air. On free diving, you don't really have to worry about it as much, but with scuba diving, you do. And so you're down at depth, there's more ambient pressure, you're breathing out of a compressed scuba tank, and the pressure has a lot to do with the volume. So as pressure goes up, volume decreases. So to fill your lungs, you're taking three, four, maybe five times more air, depending on the depth that you're at. And you're taking in more nitrogen, and that nitrogen um, can have an adverse effect on you if you don't come up slowly. So it's kind of like if you had a Coke bottle in your hand, you shook it, you wouldn't just open the cap. Yeah. You'd open it slowly. So you're trying to keep... Bad things can happen when you come yeah, up too yeah. fast. You don't want those bubbles to come out of solution. Yeah. So we come up slowly so that the nitrogen stays in solution and we do a safety stop just in case that day we're dehydrated or we didn't get enough sleep or there's some type of physiological issue. We just want to have it as an extra precaution. It's not mandatory, but it's an extra precaution. So I came up, I got in my kayak, and my dad and brother were both in their kayak. And that surprised me because they were supposed to be spearfishing. And I was like, hey, are you guys all right? What's going on? And they said, well, we just had a bad feeling about you. I was like, wow, that's, that's ironic because there's a white shark here. And my dad's like, oh, my God, did you see it? And I'm taking off my VC and I'm getting in. And I'm like, nope, I didn't see it, but I didn't have to. It's here. 
and it did something bad. I don't know what, but I had a terrible feeling down there and something bad happened. And, and I, I feel like whatever it was doing, it did it more than once, like maybe two or three times. I said, we're done diving. We're going in now. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here. So we're going in and then we hear the sirens. That's when the hair on our back stood up, you know, in our arms. And I looked at him and he looked at me and I go, I'm telling you, I bet you that boat, someone got bit in that boat, that boat that came over me. And he goes, yeah, he was just going in full speed. And I go, yeah, someone was bit. So the jet ski came out from the fire team and said, hey, there's been a white shark attack. You guys need to get in. And I was like, you see? When we got in, I found out who it was. It was a guy that I knew. Um, he knew me. And I sent him a message saying, hey, if, if you make it, you know, in between surgeries, give me a call if you can. So the next day, actually, I was blown away when I got the call from him. It's like putting half of his leg back on, mm -hmm. you know, his, the whole side of right side of his right leg. Yeah. The meat had been folded down to the kneecap. Yeah. But somehow it missed his femoral artery and his, his main nerve package. And this, I'm not telling you all this to like scare you from diving, but it, it's a reality. It's like a reality. People get mauled by bears and stuff. And yeah. I mean, I, I know of it because a, a few of my uncle's buddies, when they used to dive the Farallons and in between the coast oh, and the Farallons, yeah. you know, when yeah. they were discovering that whole area and doing dive them. trips out there, you know, guys got attacked. Yeah. But it, it was mind-blowing to me because I've just dived there so many times. I, I feel so safe there. And um, so anyways, going back to our conversation, I said, did the shark come from your left to your right? And he's like, yeah, it did. And I'm like, you saw it, didn't you? He's like, yeah. I'm like, that shark passed me before he went to you. Ugh, God, that just makes my heart feel so... Yeah. Like I can... Having having dove a few times and been in an area and just felt that shadowy presence, right. not knowing what it is, but just having felt that, like I can feel that same feeling as you're describing yeah. it. You know what I mean? And then so we got to talk and he said, yeah, you know, I was, I was on the bottom. I saw the shark come from my left to my right. And then I surfaced and I'm like, you yelled. He's like, I yelled. And I said, that's when you got bit. And he goes, yeah, that's when I got bit. I had felt everything. I said, you didn't get bit once. You got bit two or three times. And he goes, how the heck? Yeah. How do you know? And I'm like, man, I was there with you. Mm -hmm. But I was 200, 300 yards away. And that's when we both kind of got emotional. I'm like, all right, man. I got to go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I called a friend of mine in Carmel. Um, his name's Tom North. He's... Uh, only person that I know that went to the school of transcendence okay it's it's the school where people meditate for four years mm -hmm. and try to understand this world of energy yeah. like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and just all the different energies that are out there there's what a are world we, of what it. are we doing there's it's a world invisible. Of, yeah and because we don't have and the it's constant to understand it we're like no nope. it if doesn't it, exist it mumbo jumbo it doesn't exist yeah. yeah well everyone's picking up their phone and everyone's using Wi-Fi and everyone uses the microwave Mm -hmm. Wavelengths cooking food, you know, it's like it's pretty incredible. So I talked to him. He sat me down for a couple hours, and I'm not gonna do the whole spiel that he gave me. But in essence, he said, "Dan, you've been gifted something, and you've tapped into what we call the collective conscious, 
where all energy exists. And he said, I think because you're in the water, it's such a trend, it's such a conductor that you were able to absorb that. And because you're so in tune with what you're doing, you're living really in the moment. You're so relaxed. And, in nature. Yeah, and, and you're just absorbing the energies that are there. It's always been, for me, a place of rehabilitation Absolutely. and meditation. Um, and so he said, what you experience is real. And you should listen to it more. And that's when I started realizing that there's a lot to be said about our thoughts. And um, whether, whether you're religious or not, or what religion you connect to most... I think there is a really good quote from Gandhi, and um, I like studying religions. I've traveled to 53 countries in seven years. And I think <laughs> so religion, cool. if, you, if you want to understand people, understand their food and understand their religion, you have a good sense of who they are. Yeah. But Gandhi just, his first, the first thing he says is manage your thoughts because they will eventually become your words. Consider your words for they will become your actions. Take control of your actions, for they will become your habits. And be careful of your habits, because they will become your virtues, and then therefore become your destiny. So it starts with the power of thought. And going back to the main point of how this all started was, you asked me what the journey was like in my diving career, and taking that into my, my work career. And how that happened was just me thinking it up at one time I said this is what I want to do and it's gonna time. happen yeah it just happened so yeah it's it's surreal but that's how life is it's always surreal and it's surreal and it's almost unrealistic yeah. to think that like you don't have to do the cookie cutter norm you can get outside of the box the other day this, this past season, I shot the largest blacktail buck of, of my career in hunting with a bow. And I had been hunting this buck for two years, and I had stalked him multiple times, but never had that perfect shot. He's an old, mature buck. I didn't want to take a Hail Mary, you know? And it just happened to be that one day, um, I was in the right place at the right time. He came running by, and I shot him perfectly. Um, he dropped. It was a high spine, neck shot in the heart. And I remember laying back, kind of shaking in that excitement, um, not sure whether to smile, laugh, cry, yell. Like I was kind of a basket case, and I just, only one thing came out of my mouth, and that was, it's heaven on earth. Mm -hmm. and, and I started to think more about it as I was sitting there. Um, the fog was just lifting, the sun was coming out, it was becoming glorious. This was an A-zone hunt. A-zone, yeah. yeah. I mean, a Boone and Crockett buck with a bow in a zone <laughs> you know it's that's a hard thing that you've been chasing for two years yeah, I've yeah. Been watching for two years and so I just at that moment I said well, well wait a minute maybe we're already in heaven maybe this is our heaven and when we're done here we go back to regular life and at that very moment I had a much greater appreciation for every moment every breath everything we do and so then bringing us back to another concept that we we're talking about when you're free diving, you have one breath. And everything that you're trying to accomplish happens in that one breath. Mm -hmm. And if we can apply that same craving to be successful in a breath, 
to every breath we take in life, just imagine what you could actually do. Right. Imagine what's accomplishable. You're right. Yeah. There's, a, there's another story. It's not mine, but it's a fun story. So since we're going to be talking about freediving, yeah. I, think, I think we should talk about this. Um, there's a guy that had lost his job. This is a fictitious story, okay? But this guy had lost his job, and he's got a family and a wife, and he's really wondering what's going to come next. And as time went by, they lost their home. They didn't have enough money to continue, and they were homeless. Okay, that's a pretty sad situation, but it does happen to a lot of Americans. Mm-hmm. Maybe even people across the, time, the world. All the time, man. Yeah. All the time. Great people just going through a bad streak. So he goes to the streets for inspiration because that's the only thing that he feels is his still, is the streets. That's where he lives. And he's walking down the street. He sees this guy drive up in a nice car, wearing a nice suit, nice shoes. And the guy gets out of the car. You can tell he's walking to his office, and he just stops him. And he goes, I have a question for you. He goes, sure, what is it? He says, how do I become successful like you? And the guy says, you have no idea what it takes to be successful if you're asking me. And he goes, I know, that's why I'm asking. I need to know, I really need to know, I'll do anything. The guy says, okay, if you'll do anything, meet me at the beach at three in the morning. So the guy says, "Uh, yeah, of course, I'll be there. So he goes back to his tent where his wife is and he says, oh, we gotta, we gotta look for my nicest, cleanest clothes. I, I have a meeting tomorrow. This is the beginning of a new age and we're, we're gonna be successful. And um, so at three in the morning, he's there and the guy's waiting for him. He goes, this is a great start. You know, we're gonna be figuring out how I'm gonna make money from here out. Yeah. And um, the guy says, okay, I want you to walk to the water's edge. And he goes, no. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's talk about success. He goes, success is found at the edge. Of anything you do in life, it's found at the edge. So walk to the edge. So the guy walks to the edge of the water and he's standing there and he looks back, gives him a thumbs up. The guy's sitting there with the headlights on him. It's three in the morning. He says, keep going. He goes, but there's water. I can't keep going. He goes, no, I want you to keep going. So he's like, well, I got nothing to lose. I've lost everything. What the <laughs> heck? I'm going to get wet today. Call yeah. it a baptism, whatever you want. I'm going in. So he starts walking in, okay? That's the first step. It's commitment. But he's walking in, and what the guy that's, that's mentoring doesn't know is that he can't swim, okay? Life's like that. Sometimes you sink or you swim. So he gets out to his tippy toes and said, that's as far as I can go. And the guy says, good, stay there. And he's bouncing on his tippy toes, but the, 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 the riptides are beginning to take him out. And he's losing his touch with ground. Before he knows it, that guy is behind him holding him down. And he's, he's, he's searching to find his footing, and he can't find his footing, but he feels safe that the, the mentor is now there with him. After a while, he begins to get this urge to breathe, you know, where you're... you're, you're gasping for air but you can't open your mouth it's happened to all of us if we're free divers right and he taps on the guy's hand to let him up and the guy just pushes harder and he taps again and the guy pushes harder so he finds the, the, the bottom the sand and he pushes up and the guy pushes down and everything he tries to do that man pushes back and again it's kind of like life sometimes no matter what you do life pushes back always and so finally 
he, he figures out that he's going to die. And he doesn't want to die. So he, he gives this one last ditch effort. And he pushes his full speed as hard as he can. And he breaches out of the water, flips around, recoils his arm. And he's ready to punch the guy in the face. And the guy just says, stop. What just happened? He goes, what do you mean, what just happened? You're killing me. What, you're, you're freaking nuts. <laughs> and the guy goes, no. What happened to you? And he goes, well, I had to, the urge to, I had to breathe. I, I needed to breathe. I had the urge to breathe. I don't I know what to fight tell for you. it. And he goes, you had the what? He goes, the urge to breathe. And he said, or what? Or I was going to die. He said, you had the urge to breathe or you were going to die. You had the urge to breathe, otherwise you were going to die. You had the urge to succeed, otherwise you're going to die. Right. And when he changed that word, he got it. So in freediving, you learn a lot about yourself. And what I'm teaching in one breath hold, I understand a lot about a person. So everything, every weakness that you have is exposed in that one breath because freediving is 90% mental and 10% skill. The skill is the easy part. I can help you with that. I can help people. But the mental side of it, it's you. It's, it's the you that you've lived with your whole life. Mm-hmm. And you're the only one that has the control over it. But you have the power to change it, which is cool. And that's what I think my teaching is really about. Mm-hmm. It's about not doubting yourself and believing that you can do something when your body's telling you otherwise. And ironically, our urge to breathe doesn't come from the lack of oxygen for most individuals. It comes from the increase in CO2. Mm-hmm. The blood becomes acidic, and there's a chain reaction, and your brain says, exhale. So we actually have more of an urge to exhale than we do to breathe. Really? Yeah. So a lot of people, they come to my class and they say, Dan, how do I have a longer breath hold? Okay, so this is gonna be a golden nugget here. So for (laughs) everyone that's listening, um, this is the golden nugget to to hold your breath longer. If you can control what burns oxygen, okay, so muscles, your mind, your heartbeat, then you control how much CO2 is going into your body. When you eat or consume oxygen, you create CO2. That's just going to happen. So the real way to control your urge to breathe is not by hyperventilating and changing the alkalinity of your blood. In fact, that's super dangerous. You want your blood to be acidic because then the hemoglobin perform well. Mm. That's why when we're hiking, we breathe harder. And our, our face turns red, our arms turn red, our lips turn red because hemoglobin's working well. If we hyperventilate, our lips turn blue. But we have oxygen, it's because we've changed the alkalinity and the hemoglobin doesn't release the oxygen. So rather than doing something dangerous like that, we control our heart rate and we focus on efficiency. So if you inhale, what do you think happens to your heart rate? Yeah, I mean, I would say it increases. It increases, yep. When you exhale, your heart rate goes down. That's right. So we can just do simple math here. And if we inhale short and exhale long, over a period of time, our heart rate should get back down to resting. Well, it's like shooting a rifle at long range. Yeah, 
Yeah, you can use the same skill if you're a runner or if you're a hunter or you're excited. You can lower your heart rate with the same principle. So it not only helps you for free diving and for those that are listening, they're probably hunters and they might be interested in how they can apply this to their hunting yeah. or if they're hiking up a hill. Just control that acidity. Mm-hmm. And um, Now what you're saying is, is a shorter inhale yep. and a longer exhale right. in order to bring your heart rate back down to... Your lungs are shaped like triangles though with the largest portion at the bottom. We call them the lower lobes. So if you can learn to breathe with your diaphragm, which is that muscle that separates your guts from your lungs and some of your other organs, your heart and stuff, that diaphragmatic muscle actually draws air into the lower lobes. So if you look at UFC fighters or Olympians, when they're breathing, when they're talking, watch what's moving. It's just their belly. They're super athletes. So belly breathing is the best way to breathe. It's just that it doesn't look as cool. You know, if you breathe in your chest, <laughs> yeah. puff yourself puff up. Puff yourself up. Yeah, no screen, you walk into the bar and, you know, you're, you're the tough guy. If you walk in with your belly all bloated, everyone turns away. You're like, oh, but what is this weird really guy? Efficient. Yeah. Um, so, so we diaphragmatically inhale and then we passively exhale. If we do that over three to five minutes, our heart rate will go down. And that allows us to metabolize less oxygen. And then if we learn how to dive more efficiently with less movements, more analytical, only kicking when you need to, only moving when you need to, understanding where neutral buoyancy is, how many kicks it takes to get through positive buoyancy, how many kicks it takes to get into negative buoyancy. After negative buoyancy, you could probably just sink. Um, You'll end up having a longer bottom time. And so what's fun is is when I'm teaching people that maybe their maximum breath hold is like a minute or 40 seconds. And in one day of teaching, you're doing three minutes in the pool. And maybe their maximum dive was 20 feet. And by the end of the next day, they're diving to 66 feet. Oh, wow. Meters. Yeah. Wow. That's a dive, man. And you're talking, is, what's your longest free dive, your deepest free dive? My deepest free dive was where the sand was. It was 200 feet in Croatia. And wow. I couldn't go any deeper. That's, that's where the bottom was. So I swam laterally. I mm-hmm. swam, I don't know, maybe... 80 to 100 feet laterally looking in the holes. And um, yeah, I mean, it was, it didn't feel that deep. I mean, I, I had been training. All of a sudden you were down there. Yeah. That's kind of what I've always heard from guys that dive deep. Yeah. Is that in a blink of an eye, there what's, you are. What's cool about humans is that we're really good at adapting. So whatever situation we're in, we can adapt. You look at situations like the Holocaust, how could people have survived that? How could they go through that? It's so horrific. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure amidst all the pain and suffering, there were still smiles. Mm -hmm. And so it's just a testament to how much people can endure and how adaptable we are. And, um, you know, we wouldn't be here had it not been for extreme abilities to adapt. Mm Absolutely. That's that's what makes us good at hunting too. Successful hunters are really good at adapting to their environment and being able to move and think about what's needed next. And stay in it. Yeah. Yeah, not give up. It's not always easy. (laughs) No, not at all. Yeah, the cold water, the sharks in your mind, you know. I mean, the odds of seeing a shark are like one in a million, but it's in your mind. Like in your mind, there's a hundred of them. (laughs) Well, it's so funny too. And on the parallel of that, comparing it to hunting. You know, a fellow who I was just hunting with, 
recently, every single twig that snapped, every sound he heard at night, in the day, the smells, everything was a bear. Yeah. <laughs> everything. Like, I've been hunting where I hunt my entire life, and I, I mean, I've seen maybe 10, 15 bears. Right. Right? And they're always running my, away from My them. entire life. Yeah. And this guy's out, you know, for his second year of hunting, and everything is a bear, and like, so far, he shot a deer, and it was so far to the fact of like, there's blood on the ground while he's cutting up this deer, and he thinks that a bear is gonna jump over his shoulder and eat them just to get that, the bloody carcass that he's cutting up, which I think is probably more realistic for a shark to swim up on you when you're covered in blood than a bear to walk up out of the yeah. trees when you're covered <laughs> in blood. Yeah. You know, Not saying that it's gonna happen at all, but you know, if... Yeah, it's that mind game. Yeah, our mental We're challenges yeah. that we throw at ourselves to live in fear yeah. are endless. Yeah, I mean, we're so paranoid about the unknown that we'll create our own problems. We'll create our own unknown to make it worse. Yeah, make it worse. Yeah. And that, I think that's a way of people forcing themselves out of an uncomfortable situation. Right. But yeah, when, you're, when, when people are learning to free dive, yeah, that journey in that one single breath is so uncomfortable, so foreign. If I told you right now on this podcast to give me three minutes of silence and not breathe, man, where would your mind go? <laughs> I mean, I'd fight it. It'd be a struggle. Be I'd a probably struggle. pass out. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah, I don't think I could do three minutes. Right. But, but if you can overcome the urge to breathe and take it to, pat, to blackout, mm -hmm. that's an incredible feat of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. Very few people can do that without training. Yeah. It's so hard. Yeah. It's not dangerous. If you're like in a safe place like this, you know, yeah. carpet around you. If, if you're driving or you're in the water, it's super dangerous. Um, this this month we lost a diver in Florida, young diver to shallow water blackout. Mm -hmm. And um, when you black out, yeah, it's just lights out, man. Yeah. When you have that terminal gasp and you wake up, if you're face down, you're going to take on water. If you're face up and someone's there, you're all right. You know, you didn't lose any brain cells. You didn't turn into a vegetable. It's a, it's a protective mechanism that we all have. Yeah. My uncle held the world record for holding his breath underwater for a week. And then his best friend came in and defeated his time by I don't know how many seconds. Yeah. But the amount of training that it had to take and uh, implication of, or implementation, excuse me, implementation of everything that you were talking about about controlling your co2 levels and controlling every single thing that you have going on in your body in order to achieve holding your breath at such a length is just i can't even understand that so let's do, what questions do you have about free diving i'm really curious well so for for me i mean the only diving I've never scuba dove in my life. Uh -huh. So the only diving I've really ever done is, you know, I've got my tube, you know, I've got my, uh, my clip for, cause I, I like Hawaiian slings. Yeah. And I mean, mind you, I haven't dove since my early twenties, yeah. since abalone was like way better than where it is now. Yeah. Um, you know, so for free diving, what I would wonder is like, 
So if I was new, right, and, and I wanted to adventure further into the California scene yeah. of DIY activities, spear fishing, you know, abalone diving, if it ever opens back up, hopefully it will, you know, like, what do I need? What kind of gear? You know, what am I looking at? as far as getting into the ocean and you know finding spots to dive you know is there is it, is it like hunting is it public land is there just places where you can just go jump off a cliff is there closed sections how can i find out that sort of information that's a great question i think there's a lot the of audience is going to love this answer because it's it's going to be a pretty in-depth one and i'm not just going to give it for the new divers yeah but there'll be some some golden nuggets in there for the seasoned divers that maybe are on the podcast. Yeah. So um, I would say the first thing is um, sign up for a class, free diving class or a scuba class. You can spearfish on scuba or free diving. It's up to you. But you can't abalone dive with scuba. Yeah, well, we can't abalone dive at all Anyway, so. <laughs> so we'll have another podcast when that opens up. We'll do the whole thing about ab diving. Right. Um, it, was, it was great fun while we had it, but... It's closed now for the protection of the abalone in hopes that they can they can do better. So you 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 brought up we're going to go on a tangent a little bit here before we dive into the next the next step. But you brought up the abalone season and and I talked about the abalone season being closed. So what do you think are the largest contributors to the abalone seasons being closed to the I don't want to say destruction of our kelp forests, but what do you think? Because you're going to have a way better opinion um, and probably more educated opinion on what's going on underwater in order to get to the point where we're at the closure now. Yeah. Uh, nothing happens overnight, and it's not just one thing that causes um, a situation like this where abalone are dying. But in, in droves, like let's, insane let's just amounts. quickly point out all the factors that played. So I'm just going to list them off. One is temperature of water. Two is an increase in purple urchins. Three is the lack of kelp. And four is how abalone reproduce. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now on each one, the first one, we're in a state of climate change always. Mm -hmm. The world is always changing. It's the evolution of the planet. Right. Maybe we play a significant part in it. Maybe we don't. I'm, I'm not going to talk about that part of it. So I'm gonna, what I would like to ask you about that is, do you think taking millions or billions of gallons of fresh water a day out of the San Francisco Bay Area coming down from the Sacramento River, do you think redirecting that fresh water to somewhere else and it not making it back to the ocean plays any sort of role in water temperature change? I don't know. Okay. I, I couldn't answer that. Yeah. Um, but I've been diving for many years and, and temperature change is something that it's, it's never like one area, maybe it's, it's 60 degrees one year, then the next year it's 50, then it's 60 again. And it's always changing. It's just like, some years we have lots of rain and then yeah. other years we have we drought. Don't. Yeah. And, and so it's constantly Evolution changing. of the planet. Um, now, yes, I think that as humans, we could play a better part in our responsibility of monitoring our consumption of plastic and, you know, what type of things we're putting into the atmosphere. 
mm-hmm. but garbage ending up in the I ocean. I can't attest because I don't have the scientific background to attest that that's causing the climate change. Yeah. But there is a climate change. In some areas, it's exciting. Like in Southern California, we got the best bluefin tish, tuna fishing in history. You can't beat it. And and like up here, we They're just had an it. epic, epic, you know, day going out albacore fishing. A guy caught an albacore three miles off of, off of um, Eureka on his kayak. Mm-hmm. So, you know, climate, yeah, climate that's change is not always bad yeah. unless we're looking at one speci- specific species that's being affected by it. So for abalone, it was bad. The water temperatures went up. The purple lurchins showed up. They ate all of the food. They're a much more adaptable animal. Creature. Creature, yep. And they can move faster than an abalone. And abalone is just like, it's a snail. It just sits Slowly there. cruising. Yeah, so... The sea urchins came in, they ate all the kelp, and then the abalone sitting there starving, and then they just wither to nothing, and then the swells come and knock them off the, wa- off the rock, and they end up on the shore. Yeah. Millions of them. Yeah. I mean, and I saw a 10-inch abalone, 10 and a quarter-inch abalone that had no meat on no them meat. whatsoever. And then also, you have a situation where when the water temperature gets too warm, we get nutrients in the water, and we get red tide, mm-hmm. and that red tide is a bunch of organisms, living organisms that use oxygen too and when you have less kelp producing oxygen and more animals consuming oxygen end up with a hypoxic environment and everything in that environment dies and so for fish they can just swim deeper or out get away from it but abalone for them to move from 20 feet (coughs) to 40 feet depending on where they are if it's not a steep incline they might not be able to make it down there and so then we had a couple situations where millions of abalone had been dying and so the Department of Fish and Wildlife decided that the best decision was to just simply stop and reassess everything. And well, and originally they just closed part of the coast, the, the most heavily affected part yeah. of the coast, Sonoma County coast, I yeah. believe it was. And so I think that the decision was smart mm-hmm. to just say, hey, let's stop. But I think that their implementation on what we do next is poor. Yeah. Because I think that abalone should be managed just like deer mm-hmm. by zone so if imagine if we divided the northern california from san francisco to the oregon border into 50 zones a draw zone or something like that and then every zone can be monitored individually yeah so you're not looking at the entire zone making a decision some areas might actually be okay to harvest abalone and maybe you can do a drawing system or a lottery like we do with with deer deer or sheep or whatever and 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 even elk so if they implement something like that I think we might have an abalone season in the future, but that really requires a lot of changes internally and it requires- A lot of moving parts. A lot of moving parts. And whether or not the bureaucracy allows it, I can't speak to that. I don't know. I hope I hope we can. Yeah. It'd be great. Well, what I wonder, <clears throat> and I'm sure I'll get a message from somebody, I'm gonna butcher this a little bit, but uh, I believe it was the, the chocolate mountain range which originally you could sheep hunt, and they closed it down completely. They didn't limit the number of tags or anything like that. They just closed it down. Now, in order to reopen the Chocolate Mountains for sheep hunting in California, is damn near impossible because of the layers of bureaucracy and, and all the problems. And what I hope was by shutting down the abalone seasons, that it's not going to be that impossible layers of bureaucracy in order to reopen abalone for the state and passionate divers. 
Yeah, I hope so. I don't have a lot of faith in it. Yeah, unfortunately. I'm just laughing out of pain. Yeah, I've seen it happen so many times. Like in Southern California, you know, the the abalone populations are really coming back pretty strong at the islands, but they can't open it up right now because the moment they do, there's a lot of commercial guys that have invested in licenses. Oh, yeah. And the state doesn't want to pay them back for those licenses. And this is my understanding of it. Yeah. I, I may be off here, but they would have to compensate all the commercial people and make sure that they're all comfortable not getting tags to then allow the recreational take. So because there's that conflict, they just say, hey, we don't even want to go there. We're yeah. going to avoid it. Yeah. And that, that's a, a very basic understanding of it um, in Southern California because I'm mostly focused on the Northern, Northern California, California stuff. And I, I just go down south for yellowtail and lobsters and white sea bass. So you, you had asked a really cool question about how do you get into diving? What, would, what are the steps that you would take? Where would you go? So first step would be go and take that class, whether it's a free diving class, find a local instructor. instructor. Where do you teach out of? Um, do you still teach or do you not anymore? I do teach occasionally, but I don't have as much time as I used like to. Like you used to. Um, but there's a lot of great instructors out there. The two um, main courses that, that you could look at, at least on our coastline, would be performance free diving instru- performance freediving instructors, um, PFI, mm-hmm. okay, I, I, I don't work for them, but then I work for freediving instructors internationals, which is known as FII. But then some of the scuba programs like um, SSI, Scuba Schools International, and even PADI have both launched freediving programs mm-hmm. because it's one of the sectors of the market that's exponentially growing, more than scuba, freediving is doing better. So. Just go and take a course. Mm-hmm. As long as you're getting that information from someone that has been there and done that and has a recipe for success, you, you're starting off in the right direction. And by success, you mean? Um, they've been in the dive industry. They've, they have a good understanding yeah. of what it's going to be like and what it takes to be underwater. I, I always surround myself by people I admire. Mm-hmm. So I would go to someone that I admire. So I like this guy's a champion freediver. I want to become a freediver. I'm going to go to him. Or this guy's not only a deep freediver, but he's also a phenomenal spear fisherman. I definitely want to learn from him because I'm more interested in spear fishing. Mm-hmm. So I would, just like if you were going to a class, I would look at the professor that's going to be teaching and make sure it's someone that, that you really respect. and Knows. Yeah. yeah. So do a little research on it and make some, you know, ask some questions. You could also join different groups. So there's a dive group in Northern California, NorCal Skin Divers, there's SenCal down here, there's the Monterey Bay Tritons, uh, not the Monterey Bay Tritons. Yeah, they are the Monterey, yeah. Um, there's also a competition up north called uh, the Triton X, and I was getting confused with that, but there's the Monterey <laughs> Bay Tritons, um, awesome group of guys, and then there's a lot of groups on Facebook, so mm-hmm. you can actually, um, connect yourself. So the resources are there in order to figure yeah, out maybe what to do. Don't do it alone. You know, find go a buddy, find, find a group that you can go, go to a couple meetings, you know, go to a couple club events, even if you're not diving just to be there and spectate and ask questions. Um, people be are a sponge. More, yeah. People are more open to talking to you if you're in person versus calling someone and trying to dig for their their golden data, you know? It's like, <laughs> it's like hunters giving out their honey holes, man. Yeah. It just ain't gonna Why happen. Just send you my GPS. Yeah, right. So 
Um, the journey in freediving or spearfishing is that you're going to get to do all this exploring. So if you're not an explorer, it might not be the right sport for you. You've got to be the person that loves to explore because mm-hmm. you're going to have a lot of time figuring stuff out. Poking around in holes and yeah. rocks. And- yeah. So that would be the first two things. Then I would also pick up a, you know, the fishing game regulations. It can be really complicated. Um, and I've played with the idea of posting a YouTube video on it, but it's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. So then I wouldn't want to... Every year. Yeah, to yeah. the service of posting a video and then having to... A year later, it's completely outla- yeah. outdated and terrible. But um, as of right now, if we're talking about the, you know Northern California, we can go out and, and catch 10 fish from this RCG complex. R stands for rock cod, C stands for cabazon, and G stands for greenling. And the, the combinations of those uh, might change, but in that com- complex, you can have 10. So for example, you could have 10 rockfish and no cabazon and greenling, or you could have um, seven rockfish and three cabazon and no greenlings, or you could have a combination adding greenlings in. I haven't shot a greenling in a very long time. They're pretty good though, they're unique flavor, but I prefer the rockfish and the cabazon over it. Um, so then I've seen the, the limit on green links change, but I believe right now it's 10. So then you get 10 out of that complex and then you can go into some of the other species like lingcod. So if you want to, if you're really going for a big party and you need to get some fish you can get <laughs> your 10 rockfish, and you can get two lingcod. right now. The limit is back down to two. Um, and then you can go and catch some perch or sheep's head or halibut, mm-hmm. um, but your total combination of any species of fish is 20. So if you're going to spear a halibut, mm-hmm. is there a size regulation on yeah. a speared halibut? And how do you go about figuring out the size while you're underwater? That's a tough thing. Just um, shoot the barn door. It's kind of... <laughs> I mean, make it's sure it's like the big those one. guys in Alaska that have to <clears throat> judge a ram from yeah. like a mile away to become It's got to be like a three-quarter ram or better or... How the heck How do you do even that? do that? They have to be able to do it like without experience, man, dude. Experience. So, so yeah, experience is obviously one of them. Yeah. But we also have some other tools that work really well. Like some people will look through their Boone and Crockett reticle, and then the distance between the reticle will determine the size of the body, and the size of the body divide it by two, and then you get the length of the of the, of the, the ram's horns. Yeah. Um, so with with spearfishing, it's kind of the same thing. All the different species could potentially have a size limit. Like lingcod have it. Sheephead has it, Greenling has it, Cabazon has it, Calico Bass have it, um, Halibut have it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's across the board. Most of the, the rockfish don't have it. Yeah. But the Lincoln um, and the Halibut do. So then, for example, if I'm hunting with, let's say, a 75 centimeter spear gun, I just figure out what the length is of my spear gun. And periodically while I'm diving, I'll drop my spear gun on the bottom and I'll be like five feet away from it. And I'll just look at it. And I'll get an idea. Study of, how long yeah, it well, is. That's, that's about the length they need to go for. So mm-hmm. then I'll just add 10% to that for the fish that I'm going after. Mm-hmm. The better you to get, ensure the less likely over. you are to shoot a small animal. It's the same with hunting. Yeah. You know, if, like the longer you have. The spork, the little fork with the horn on the other side is probably not going to be what you're going after yeah. at this point in your career. Yeah. You're looking for a mature big animals so you don't have to worry about the size yeah but in the beginning you do because anything is a trophy right yeah i remember my first black it was like <laughs> i was stoked to get anything with a bow yeah and um so i think um 
you also want to look at the zones in which you're allowed to hunt and what you can take. And this is where it does get pretty common. Now by hunt, you mean spearfish. Spearfish, sorry. Okay. Yeah. No, no, you're right. So we have um, the Marine Protection, Marine Life Protection Act, MLPA. And that went into play a few years ago where they established, NOAA decided that 10% of the California coastline needs to be a reserve. And that's gonna be the safe haven for animal reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, the way they went about it was a little bit interesting. I think they should have put a little bit more emphasis on areas of pollution and stuff like that. But anyways, it's a good concept to have 10% off limits. Mm-hmm. Like everybody knows the, the best possible place to hunt is on the border of a state park, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> Archery season, all the deer on public land. Yeah. They're all out there frolicking. Yeah. Having a good Sierras, time. You know, X zone, D zone combination. Everyone knows that's, that's one of the best places yeah. to go. So it's it's the same with us. We love having those safe havens because there's a lot of fish being reproduced and fish move around a lot more than animals do. Mm-hmm. But those MLPAs can be a bit complicated. However, there is um, a mobile app. website. It's not oh. an app, it's a website, but you can save it to your phone and you can toggle into it and it'll find your location. It's a little bit complicated to find the path to get to that, but you, you, it, you click on it and it finds your location, it zooms in. Like we can look right here we're in uh, Half Moon Bay, and this is Pillar Point Harbor, and it's famous for its surf spot called Mavericks, mm-hmm. where they, they get some of the biggest waves in the world out here. But from Mavericks North, there's a reserve, and it's a no-take. It's, an, it's, it's a completely red block on that map. And so some areas might be a no-take for crustaceans, but they might allow for finfish. And so, like in Carmel, you can't take any crab or um, any scallops, but you can shoot finfish. Um, but as you get further south, you get to Point Lobos, and then it's, a, again, a completely no-take. So studying that's really important. Utilizing the app's really helpful. Having a GPS is, I think, pretty handy. And Garmin just came out with a new GPS, so their previous handheld, which is the GPS map 70, 76 or 78 is going to get cheaper. It's only like 150 bucks, but it's, it's now it's a waterproof device. It is. I've still put it in a waterproof bag because I love kayak diving. I think that kayak diving allows you a lot of freedoms of locations to mm-hmm. get in and it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to pay for registration. You can drag it across rocks. It's really a good investment, I think, for divers. A on kayak. The coast. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're down in, in, like, if you're out in Florida, maybe a kayak's not as good because you need to go pretty far out um, or, you know, other other places you know, it could be challenging with a kayak but here most of our best diving is really close to shore mm-hmm. i mean we're working that zero to 60 feet is really where you're going to find the best fish i can dive much deeper but there's really not a need to mm-hmm. you find there's more fish in shallow than there is out deep really yeah huh. there's more terrain i should say and and fish really love it's kind of like if i asked you to go find a bunch of people it's like the edge effect there's a lot more going on in the first 60 feet than once you get deeper. Yeah, and it's, it's temperamental. If the conditions are rough, then those fish have to move deeper. So you need to also pay attention to the, your surroundings. But if I asked you to find a bunch of people, you'd go to the city. If I had, and if I asked you to like be, you know, specifically find a certain type, like age class uh, 16 to 30, and predominantly female, you'd be like, I'm going to the mall. Yeah. You know? So then it's the same thing with spearfishing. We have these locations where they're like, they're like malls. 
and the fish check in and they hang out and then they check out and they move to another mall and they love these little cities and and for our fish on the north coast up here it's predominantly structure oriented because these are not pelagic fish they don't swim hundreds of miles like yellowtail and white sea bass they're not migratory um so then there, you'll find a reef with a lot of holes like swiss cheese and, and those fish love it man they're going in and out and got all their little errands to run <laughs> looking for food and, and the fish the predators down below <laughs> and the lingcod and they're always hiding they want to, they're ambush predators so then you could say well man the whole food chain is here so once you know the location, so let's say, for example, that since we've already spoken about it, you're going to go to Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. You know, you pay the $10 to go down 17-mile drive. It's beautiful. And you get down there to the dock and to where they've got the pier. And, and you, there you do need a kayak, I think. Shore diving is a little hard. It's about a 300-yard swim before you actually get out of the mouth of the cove. Mm-hmm. But there's areas around there that you don't have to do that. You could shore dive. So you get in your kayak, you paddle out half a mile or whatever. You find a nice kelp bed and... You start diving. If you're not seeing anything, you should probably keep moving. Yeah. You know, you need to find the city. Got to keep moving. If you find the city and there's a bunch of blue rockfish and olive rockfish hanging out in the kelp, what do you think's below it? Mm -hmm. Predators. Yeah. And you'll probably realize, wow, well, these fish are up here, but ironically down below, there's the perfect terrain for lingcod. There's all these holes and the vermilion rockfish and the china rockfish and the gophers and all the different species are there. And then you might... You might see like coralline algae in the shallows. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a soft coral almost, and the cabazone love to nestle into that because they really? like eating the little crabs and the baby abalones. Um, and then you know if you paddle south from there, there's a beach, and you know then there's sand, and uh, you could look for halibut. And so again, halibut really like to be close to the hotel, but they know they can't be in the hotel because they don't camouflage well in rocks. <laughs> So then they have to sit on the edge, on the sand. Yeah. But if you put a halibut just out in the middle of the sand, why is he going to be there? Mm-hmm. There's nothing for him to eat unless there was a big squid orgy at night and there's a bunch of squid eggs and dead squid. Then he's oh, sitting really? there eating it like spaghetti. Yeah. So the big one that I just posted on my Instagram recently was it was a 40 plus pound halibut. That you speared. Out, yeah. 60 feet. He was out in the squid flats. Really? Yeah, so he had been eating squid all, or she had been eating squid all night long. It was a big female, and was like just swollen fat. Couldn't even bury herself. You're just sitting there, and her belly was just plugged with squid and, and squid eggs. Just so came I, along and plugged her out. Yeah, I went for a little ride. You know, it's like swimming around with a magic carpet. I mean, a forty pound flat fish is. is and that's on powerful. a free dive. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's it's pretty incredible. Like. Once you understand what the fish needs, it's the environment you're looking yeah, for. Yeah, it's pretty easy to, to find successfully it. So hunt. You can be the explorer, and you're just searching for one of those key factors, any of them, and then that's going to tip you off to understand what else is there. You you might otherwise just pass over it. Like if it's murky and you're swimming, 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 you see a school of blue rockfish, you don't make a dive. You're like, I don't want blues, and you keep going. Well, you might have passed up that like perfect mall that perfect city mm-hmm. where everything is down there so then if you see that you know maybe stop and start making some dives and then when it comes to gear a lot of people first it's just like hunting everyone asks about gear before they actually become a hunter but it's it's important it, it is important because i think comfortability you, in the yeah. water is so important man. yeah you got to be comfortable and yeah. it doesn't make sense freeze. to buy the gear twice yeah so buying the right gear up front is important the equipment that you would need for free diving 
Uh, the most important piece of equipment, and people ask me, like, Dan, if there's one nugget of advice that you could give me that I could become a better freediver just with one tip, what would it be? Change your wetsuit. Go to a freediving wetsuit. It's open cell neoprene on the inside. You use hair conditioner to get into it. The whole dive, you're sliding through it. It's really warm. There's no zippers. There's no seams. The hood is attached. It's, it's really effective. Mm-hmm. And so you don't feel like you're in a straight jacket. <laughs> like a lot of, you know, they're walking around. They can barely breathe. I always dove in a Farmer John, man. So yeah. well, I get it. Well, they have Farmer Johns, but with the right material. They're yeah. using high quality materials. I mean, Which so, is probably so much different than the wetsuit that oh, I have in yeah. my closet. It's incredible. <laughs> like, it's just night and day. It, it's the equivalent of going hunting in Tevas versus a quality pair of boots, like sheep hunting. Yeah. That's how dramatic it is. Like, you couldn't pay me to go out there in like a, a cheap Farmer John scuba suit. I wouldn't even do it. Yeah. One time I drove to Carmel, I forgot my wetsuit. There's a dive shop right there. I drove home. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not renting one of those suits. Yeah, you're so all done. That would be my first, if you're gonna invest in the equipment, get the wetsuit. And then the second most important thing would be your fins, yeah. okay? Efficiency. So we use long bladed soft fins that are, uh, they're just one, it's like a slip on shoe. There's no straps or buckles to get hung up on anything. It's safer. And they fit snug. I have a good video on my YouTube on how to properly fit a fin. And what's your YouTube channel? Uh, it's just my name. Okay. Dan Silvera. S-I-L-V-E-I-R-A. Okay. Yeah. So, and Instagram is freedivingdan. Free mm-hmm. We can maybe post that. Yeah, we'll get in on that. Okay. So then, um, yeah, just getting a properly, you know, proper fitting fin would be important. And then it doesn't really matter the material. You know, they have plastic, fiberglass, and carbon, obviously going up in quality on each one. Um, I find myself often leaning towards the fiberglass because it's got the durability features that I'm looking for, a little bit more cost-effective, and the performance is very similar to my carbon. So, for example, let me give you an example here. If, If I need to dive to 10 meters, which is 33 feet, and then dive to 20 meters, which is 66 feet, it takes me seven wide kick cycles with my plastic fins to get to 10 and seven narrow kick cycles to get to 20 meters and a kick cycle is after both legs have gone forward okay Mm -hmm. with my carbon fins it takes me three kick cycles to get to 10 and three more to get to 20. now what makes the difference for that response okay so the material responds faster and it takes less effort Mm -hmm. so if i was to it's almost like ultralight honey yeah yeah, if I was to bend a plastic blade, you'd see that it comes back fairly slow. <clears throat> and then if you look at a scuba fan, it's usually made out of rubber. <laughs> it doesn't even come back. It just stays bent. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Um, so then with the fiberglass, it takes me three and a half. So the, the difference, the offset is not much. It's, it's a half a kick cycle, which is one leg having going forward one more time. So I, I trust the, fiber, the fiberglass fins really you know i travel all over the world with it and when mm-hmm. i'm in antarctica you know or the arctic or that's cold diving yeah yeah that was really cold that's cold diving man. level of cold i've only but seen footage of that ironically kind of we didn't take we didn't take dry suits we took wetsuits these freediving wetsuits are that warm really yeah we just what millimeter we went with are nine. you running up here nine nine in, in antarctica okay what are you running down here like six and a half seven we run seven seven yeah, so that's what I always had growing up. California and Baja, I like to run five. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if I'm in tropical water, that's above. 
And that's the thickness, just so anybody who, who right. needs to know, it's the thickness yeah, of they, the wetsuit. They, they measure it in millimeters. Yeah. Because I think most of the companies that make this stuff are European. European, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, they're really meticulous, you know? Yeah. And that's what I love about it. They look at a piece of gear and, and they don't look at it for the same reasons we look at it. They're like thinking about how it's going to perform. Underneath the water. Yeah, that's why a lot of the best cars are from Europe, too. I mean, yeah. Ferrari and all the great names. Yeah. Maserati. Um, so for freediving, we're not counting scuba tanks, so we can't get away with like gear that maybe is not as high performance. We need high performance. But a freediving fin, whether it's plastic, fiberglass, or carbon, is going to be a huge leap away from the scuba fin. So I would still highly recommend at least getting into that. And a lot of the blades are modular. So you can take the blade out and just switch when you have the money to. Or, really? You know, or, yeah. That's so helpful. Right, yeah. I mean, it'd be like, um, I mean, it's kind of like a layering system almost with hunting. You don't have to invest in. Yeah, this whole time as you're talking about everything, I'm comparing it <laughs> yeah. to how we structure or how I'll structure my pack and my pack out and, yeah. you know, what I'm bringing in and, and all the different things going on. Right. You know? I mean, yeah, if, if you have a Kuyu Icon Pro frame, yeah. you could start off with a. An 1850, and 1850, then if you need to work up to... you're ready to, to do the backpacking, you can yeah. get a 5200. Yeah, well, it's a 6000 now, but yeah. 6000, yeah. Yeah. I have a 5200, I still love I it. I have a 5200, <laughs> I just got a 6000 after my last hunt. I, I, I don't was, know if I could carry anymore. I'm well, chicken legs for free diving. Well, so I was, I was using a, a 5500 Ultra for this season yeah. instead of my Icon, and Icon updated their pack system, so or the pro, I guess, or the pro pack, or however they fucking break down the silly name now. And the ultra pack after this last year, like I would much rather carry the extra two and a half pounds of weight of the bag on my back than not because of the luxury that comes with the extra weight yeah. is so monumentally different. Yeah. Than, than what I was running with the Ultra Pack. It was a great pack. I loved it. If you're a super minimalist, totally going to work for you. But I'm I, not. I'm not that guy. Dude, I, I need, I need that fucking horseshoe yeah. zipper. Like, I need full access to yeah. in the internal. Everyone always makes fun of me because I'm the guy that has two of everything and I'm yeah. overpacking. But when someone has something that goes bad, you know, they're like, oh, thanks for... Thanks for packing this yeah, extra weight in. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm the overpacker. Yeah. Like, um, so the, the Icon Pro is really the pack for me. And that, for sure. I totally relate to that. Yeah. The I mean, I, I, was, I was packing. I'm going, I'm leaving on the 28th of September. And I can talk about this because this will probably come out after that or right around that same date. I'm leaving for um, a stone sheep hunt. So it'll be my, my fourth sheep hunt this year. And uh, I'm going to fly up to Canada and I'm just like, I'm packing everything. And I've always kind of like had a pack and, and, you know, I've gone on a couple pack hunts where you're going for prolonged periods of time. And it's amazing after this last sheep hunt that I just came off of, which was a total of 14 days, three sheep. The amount that I learned on what I can get away with and not having for 14 days or 15 days. Like my pack has slimmed down so much because there's just like, there's only a couple essentials really that I need, you know, the largest thing being food, but you know, it's kind of, I don't know, it's crazy. But listening to you talk about like, you can switch out this blade and you know, it, like what you were saying with, you can have the icon frame and switch out the bag to whatever bigger bag that you need at the, you know, appropriate time. Yeah. A lot of people even switch out their 
top and bottom if we have a wet seat, they'll maybe start off with a five mil bottom and a seven mil top so that later when they do dive down in Southern California, they can just get a five mil top. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously you want to wear the least amount of millimeters of neoprene on your body as possible because it's less restriction. Well, and then probably have to wear less on the weight belt less too. Less on the weight belt too. Yeah. So we've gone through wet seat, we've gone to fins, and then weight belt, you wear a rubber weight belt so that as your suit compresses, the rubber weight belt doesn't slide around and like oh, really? your chest. See, I've always know. used it. Yeah, the nylon one. The nylon one. Yeah, so once you switch to a rubber, <laughs> it's, it's really nice. And they have some even with the crotch strap that holds it in position when you go inverted. Um, and then after that, it's just, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if you've got like a scuba mask. I mean, obviously we wear low volume masks because mm-hmm. as you're diving down, the pressure is pushing that mask against your face and you need to exhale into your nose out of your nose into the mask to equalize the mask otherwise it will actually it can it can do some trauma to your eyes yeah suck your eyes out of your skull yeah you get some i mean not really red but eye yeah and um it's painful yeah you can, it, i mean if you come i know if you go you down too deep or come up too fast you can blow your ears out like terribly yeah when you go down you definitely want to make sure that you're equalizing and i've had students um damage their you know, perforate their eardrum mm-hmm. by pushing Start past. bleeding out of their ear. It does, yeah. So yeah. you need to make sure that you can equalize all the way down. Um, so that kind of comes down to technique. Just thinking about it has me clean Te- my ears. Yeah, te- <laughs> technique and diet. Diet has a lot to do with equalization. <clears throat> really? Yeah. How does diet play a role into it? Um, if you're really into dairy, a lot of cheese, you know, it, it definitely thickens your mucus. Mm-hmm. And if you don't hydrate enough, that thickens your mucus. If you're a smoker, that... Um, restricts your nasal passages. Mm-hmm. Um, caffeine restricts your nasal pass- passages. Really? If you have too much of it. So um, <clears throat> eating clean food is helpful. And then you've got other parts of your body that are affected by diet. Like um, there's a pretty good chart by LifeWater where they show the different foods and the pH of what happens in your body after you consume it. So homeostasis is seven pH of seven. So our body, when we're perfect, is seven on the pH scale. It's ironic because the the seven point five is the gigahertz that our body enjoys the most. So really? if you're doing sound healing or tuning or the vibration of the oceans, there's around seven. How crazy yeah. is that? So we're all connected. talking about what we were already yeah. on a tangent on, <laughs> just being in sync with everything. Right, right. You know, and the energies. Remind me to come back to to a point on that. Um, yeah about what makes a successful hunter. Um, in fact, I kind of want to go there now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, get get after it. Okay. So, Tangent um, that. Yeah, we're go going for off. it. This is, this is the rabbit hole that you wanted me to go down. So um, a lot of times people ask me, how, you know, what makes me a successful spear fisherman? Why, are the, why am I always getting more fish? And I tell them, because I'm not a hunter. And they're like, what? Yeah, like, I'm not a spear fisherman. Mm-hmm. And they're like, but how can you be a spear fisherman and not be a spear fisherman at the same time? I said, well, because when I'm underwater, I'm a jellyfish or a rock or a piece of kelp or another fish. I just figure out what the environment is and I become the environment. And, and then it, I'm just an observer. Well, and it's like what you were saying earlier, the adaptation. Yeah. Right? And I only... Become, Our ability to adapt. Right. You're, you're adapting to your environment. In order to be a better pet- to be yeah, a better be, predator, be the chameleon, yeah, and then 
you're only a, you're only a spear fisherman or a hunter the moment you decide to pull the trigger. Yeah. But if if you're conscious about being a hunter the whole time, that energy is out there. It's like, have you ever tried to walk up to an animal hunched over? They freak out. Yeah. But if you just walk up to them, the deer is just standing there. Hey, what's up? You're like you're not wearing camo. Yeah. <laughs> and and they don't run. And it's like they get it because they know you're not hunting. Non-threatening. Like how many times the camera has like the biggest buck of your life walked up to you on public land? Yeah. And then you go in with with a bow or a rifle and they're just gone. Gone. It's because of our mindset. That's my belief, okay? Maybe well, and that plays in a role into what we were talking about about horses earlier, being able to sense that energy in it. Yeah, and so fish are really in tune with it, and yeah. they can see it in your eyes. Yeah. They monitor your eyes. Like, I love hunting wahoo. Well, and one of the biggest things my dad always tells people is never make eye contact with the animal that you're going to kill or it's yeah, going to run away, especially during archery yeah, if, season. If, if you're in Oakland and you're walking down the street staring at people, you're going to get beat up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you just Absolutely, yeah. I get what you mean. Or people are just going to be running from you if, yeah. if, you're, if you're a gnarly looking dude. Right. <laughs> so um, it's the same with nature. And just don't be a hunter. Yeah. Don't tell yourself you're hunting. Be an organic you. part of life. Yeah, just happening. I'm a hiker. I'm an observer. Yeah. Or even better, I'm a jellyfish. I'm a log. Man, talk about a fish attractor. Mahi, mahi, tuna. All life comes to a floating log. Mm-hmm. So if you can just be that and your camel represents that. They're going to come right to you. Yeah, they're going to come to you. Just yeah. your, your body expression needs to match your mental state of, of being. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I think, what's helped me in spearfishing. And it's definitely helped me in hunting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there was a podcast that someone else did about bow hiking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a bow hiker until I pull the trigger. Right. So I, I'm just I hike with my bow. Thing, yeah. And in my mind, it's it's a twig or it's a a bag of lunch or it can be anything. It, it's not doesn't a bow. matter. Yeah. It's not a bow. It's not a weapon until I tell it to be. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that concept. Yeah. So okay, we've. We've done our tangent. We're going to go back into weight the things belts, that we need. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about the weight belt. Um, then, obviously, the most exciting part is the spear gun. And a lot of times, I think people pick their spear gun um, incorrectly, actually. Mm-hmm. So I think that the best way to pick a spear gun is to first start off with a fish you want to hunt mm-hmm. and work backwards. So then that's going to tell you, okay, if, how about let's do this. Pick a fish. What do you want to shoot? If, if I was to tell you, you're a spear fisherman right now, what's the fish you want to shoot? Man, I'd want to go shoot a big halibut. A big halibut? Like what you cool. just did. And where? Uh, anywhere in the pay area that I could do okay, it. Okay, pay yeah. area. So let's say um, we're right here. I mean, yeah. we've shot halibut in Half Moon Bay. Yeah. So Half Moon Bay, if you look at the shoreline, it's soft. It's soft rock. It's it's not even it's like sandstone. Like that's why Devil Slide keeps closing. They had to build a tunnel. Mm-hmm. You came through it today. Yeah. Um, because it just keeps washing away. Well, all that matter goes into the ocean. Mm-hmm. It's murky here. It's really really hard to dive here. I dive here maybe two or three times a year. It's phenomenal when I do. It's like a. This is a nice clear day. When I cleared it, like no one spearfishes here because it's like mud every time. Yeah. So I would probably start off with a fairly small gun with some power. Because if you're going to shoot a halibut, like let's say it's a 20 pounder, you're going to need enough power to get through all that flesh, bone, and penetrate into the sand a little ways so that the toggle flopper can open so mm-hmm. that it, it, you have some type of it a, stays in the a fish. barb. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a barb that opens up. 
And because I've always used a Hawaiian sling, right? My whole life, I've always been you can shoot six foot Hawaiian, Hawaiian sling. sling. Man, That's gonna be, be a rough yeah. one, dude. Yeah, when you shoot, it, I don't think to go. like you're gonna have to hold it down. You're gonna have to hold it. Just down. pin it, right? Yeah, I've shot a lot of them with the Hawaiian sling. And hopefully, just aim for the head and don't fuck up. I don't know. I can't ever find the stone shot on a halibut. On a halibut's head. Really? I can't find it. Yeah, I so bet. So for though. me, on a halibut, I like shooting that pectoral fin. Mm-hmm. All of its organs are right underneath there, and it just seems to stun them enough that you can get your hands on them. Yeah. And so, I would say that for around here, you probably want to go at like an 80 centimeter gun, 75 to 80 centimeters with two bands, toughen it up mm-hmm. and make sure that, yeah, you're shooting that, that pectoral fin that's fairly soft that you can get into, but there's just enough bone matter in there that it doesn't usually come off the spear. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would do. I'd work backwards and then I'd want to reel on my gun. So maybe like 30 meters of, of line just in case they do make a run while you're coming back to the surface. Just yeah. open the reel, let them go. Because halibut make one to two runs and then they just lay back down. So my favorite thing to do is I have my gun on a reel with my float line clipped to the back of it if I'm free diving. And then on my buoy, I've got a hoop stringer. It's like a metal stringer mm-hmm. where you put the fish on it. And so if I was to shoot that fish, I would open my reel and come up I would let the fish go and do its thing and lay back down. And then I would unclip my gun and I would attach it to the buoy because it's on a reel. And I would take my float line, the, the, the bitter end of my float line, and I would clip on my hoop stringer. Mm-hmm. Then I would dive down with that hoop stringer open. And the halibut, typically when they're laying, um, half of them are right eye dominant, half of them are left eye dominant. So depending on what side of the head the mouth you is oriented. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. You would open your stringer and their mouth is always open when they're laying down. They never close it completely and you just start fishing that stringer into their mouth. Really? Once it's in their mouth, you can close it and no matter what they do, even if they open the stringer again, their orientation is such that if they swim, away, they try to swim away, they keep swimming up the stringer. Mm-hmm. If you go from the gills out of the mouth, which most people do, when they open it, they come off. Really? Yeah. So I come fish them in, in through the mouth and out the gill. Yeah. I fish them in and I clip it. They're on, man. They're not going anywhere. Yeah. That's a done deal. It doesn't matter if that fish is alive or dead. Yeah. Then you could either bring it up and take off your shaft and deal with it, or you could do it. You could unclip it and come up with the gun and, and, the, and the spear down there. Really? And that fish can just stay down there. It doesn't matter. Or you could bring it up and. I don't like ripping the gills out of the halibut to bleed them right when I'm diving. You know, I do it at the end of the dive, but I mean, I don't want to draw more attention to myself than I need to. I mean, we are in waters that have sharks and they're there every day. So <laughs> I have a device that sharks are always that. around. I have a shark shield and it's an electromagnetic device that I wear that does, it does keep the sharks away. It works well, actually. I've oh, tested wow. it in a lot of countries and it's surprising how well it works. They, they just don't like it. Yeah. Um, and so I wear that. It gives me extra peace of mind, but I'm not going to add more reasons for the shark to come. Right. I don't, I don't want to have to kill a shark and end up with this big mess and like deal with California saying you shot a species that's protected like a white shark. It's like so, shooting a yeah. mountain lion, I'd assume. Right. Yeah, but even if your life is in danger, you're probably still getting in trouble. Yeah. Like, how are you going to... I just... I don't want to go there. Yeah. So I believe the fish, once I'm done diving, mm-hmm. I'll 
you know, gill them and bleed them. Yeah. They might bleed out a little bit when they're down there, but I like to leave the fish on the bottom, just on that hoop stringer. And they're still alive, and so if say, seals will come, they'll just swim away. Yeah. And it's, it works great. Um, so we discussed halibut a bunch. So now we're going to kind of roll into, and this is going to be our, our quote sponsored section of the podcast. Just this one question. All right. So I'm sponsored by a company called dead eye outfitters. They're an amazing group of guys. They make hats, t-shirts, socks, hoodies, super comfortable clothing and apparel for off of the mountain lifestyle off the mountain, not actually hunting gear. Um, so that being said, my question for you is, what is your gnarliest moment that you've ever experienced while spearing a fish, whether it be with sharks or you know octopus trying to eat you? I have no idea <laughs> what it could be, but I'm sure that you have, and it, and it could be just from when you were doing cinematography and photography underwater. What's your most gnarly and like panicked underwater moment in your career of diving since you were seven is when you said you started? Um, yeah, I've got one. I've got a good one actually. So I was in Panama mm -hmm. and you know, when you're young, you just have the ambition to go. <laughs> it doesn't matter the what foolishness, the, yeah, what the adventure is. Like you get like, five guys piled into a Jeep and just drive to the middle of nowhere. So it was that same situation where we knew there was a guy with a sailboat and um, we got a couple clients together and we sailed out to this island. It's called Snake Island, okay? And when we get there to anchor up, there's literally like thousands of the, the most venomous sea snakes in the world. Get the fuck out of here. Are you <laughs> and they're kidding? They're everywhere. Like yeah. we're pushing them away with our boat. Uh-huh. And I'm like surrounding the, yeah, the shoreline like, of the be island. Kidding me? We're oh god, that's so scary. And, and, and the boat, according to the guy, was like this monster yacht. And we, when we got there, it was like a dinghy. You know, it was like this tiny little sailboat with no AC, no water, like nothing. We're gonna do a week on this thing. Yeah, you're thinking of like a 50 or a 60 yeah, footer, and like, you oh, come on to like a nice. 25 or yes, a 30. Yes, that's exactly. Right. <laughs> and there's like it's five so of us with so much gear. Yeah, and, and so we anchor up for the night. It was so hot below. I couldn't bear sleeping down there. So I came up on top and I was so terrified of these venomous sea snakes like all crawling up on me at night. I couldn't sleep either. So I got no rest. Next day we wake up and the guy's got the smallest dinghy you've ever seen. It's like eight feet long and we got the pile of buoys and gear and giant tuna spear guns. And snakes <laughs> slithering in. Yeah. A bunch of us piled in it and we're, we're motoring out and we got dropped off and I could tell that there was some pretty strong current. And I remember telling the captain, I said, when you go back to get the next group of people, you need to stay out here with us. You need to pick us up and, and drop us off for another current ride. I said, the current's pretty strong and, and I don't want to drift past the point of this island. Long story short, we got in, I dropped down, there's a nice Trevally cruising by and I shot it and immediately like a dinner bell, the sharks are on us. No and, way. Yeah, they're silky sharks and they're just, they're everywhere. There's like, I don't know, maybe 10 of them. And it's kind of murky at that spot. We weren't far enough offshore. So you got snakes, now you got sharks. Yeah, and the venomous sea snakes were also swimming around, but- Everything's gonna kill you. The, their, their teeth are so far set back in their mouth that they can only bite like between your fingers or your oh, really? lobe. Yeah. So 
it's unlikely that they could bite you, but it's still like uncomfortable. Snakes just make yeah. me feel uncomfortable anyways. Yeah. So the captain drives back to the boat and I keep looking back and I'm like, where is he? Like I got this fish, I'm ready to drop it off. I'm holding my spear gun in the air, which typically means, hey, come get me. And he's not coming back. And I'm, I'm looking at the tip of the island. I was okay, I'm just gonna string this thing onto my waist. I put the fish on my waist. And the shark's still coming in, but I'm able to push him away. And, and my client's with me. I'm like, all right, let's, let's get you a big fish now. So he's getting ready, he's diving down. We're not seeing what we want. It's a little murky, he's a little excited. And then before I know it, we're drifting past the tip of the island. I go, damn, like maybe we should make a break for it and just swim to the island. But there's like 10 foot waves crashing on shore. I'm like, ah, that, that might not be a good idea. I don't want to just, the, the captain will come. He's a captain, you know, like he's not going to make a mistake like that. Finally, moving forward uh, quite a ways, uh, that island is like getting pretty small. It's like a, a dot in the distance. The horizon's and looking like, difficult. I, there's no other islands. Like, where are we going, you yeah. know? And I'm starting to freak out. And my, my client, the sharks are still following us for some reason. And, and he's like, just let, just give the fish to them. I'm like, you know, this might be our last meal. He's like, what? I'm like, I don't know how we're going to get back. The current's coming this way. Like, we can't swim against the current. Yeah. There's nothing. It's too strong. Do. It's too, just too strong. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, the boat's not coming out to look for us. So I was thinking, I said, you know, I think we're actually approaching the change of tide. And I said, if that current starts lightening up, we should, we should just swim. And he's like, there's no way we can make it. So we ended up swimming. The current did change. We ended up swimming. We ended up getting back and we were just about to go into those big waves to just get to the island. It had been hours and we were so dehydrated. Um, and this was day one. You know? <laughs> it's ruthless. And, and finally we see the captain like circling around where he dropped us off. And then he, he came and... and um, he, he saw you. Yeah, he came to get us and I, I took him into the water. I was not happy with him. Yeah. So I bet we'll leave it at that, but because um, that's got to be so much different layers of panic that comes yeah. into that kind of situation, because you're essentially lost at sea and right. victim to the current. Yeah, at that point, no there's really nothing you can do except for ride it out and hope for exactly what you said, which is the tide change. Right, but you know I've had situations where I've been like stuck under a rock. That's kind of terrifying, but you know if you can just not panic calm down a little bit um, you'll find a way out well and, and how important is it when you're underwater to realize that panic just like when you're in the mountains is your worst enemy well, i think that's that's the joy in freediving is that you're conquering you've conquered your mind already mm -hmm. you've dealt with the hardest thing which is no oxygen like you're face to face with death on a breath hold the whole time because mm -hmm. if you don't breathe at some point you're gonna die yeah but so I think your mind is strengthened by learning to become a freediver. And, and then these situations feel small. Gaining have, mental toughness. Yeah, you feel like you can conquer anything. Yeah. If you can hold your breath to the end, yeah, I think, I think you've got the mental fortitude to deal with those situations. And it's not a matter of when it's, or if it'll happen. It's a matter of when. You know, it's going to happen at some point. You're going to end up in a situation that's uncomfortable. Yeah. And, Hopefully, Possibly there's time and opportunity for you to think and make decisions that can get you out of it. Yeah. You know, there are things that are out of our control, like the recent fire on the boat in Southern yeah. California. God, that was rough. My, I was with 
my buddy Andrew, who I did a podcast with, and that's his backyard. Yep. You know, and he knows the crew and and yep. a lot of how all that operation works. And but I mean, that happens to people on airplanes too. They're flying yeah. this spot. You have no control in an airplane. The airplane crashes. Yeah. So there's a lot of situations that I've had in the ocean that mm-hmm. have been a little sketchy, but nothing that I couldn't get myself out of and dealt with all the biggest baddest sharks in the world and they haven't been done anything that I felt was dangerous what's it like being that close with great white sharks and I, I I'm asking because I only get to talk to my uncle about yeah. being that in that close of proximity with great white sharks so I would love to hear your perspective on it it's it's kind of like seeing what would you consider is the biggest baddest animal on land if I'm out hunting, if I that would be like a situation of being stalked by a mountain lion. Would be the most comparable. Okay. So imagine there's a mountain lion and you're face to face with it and it's like it's such a beautiful animal. So you're like in awe of the beauty and the their ability to come in so silently and the such, power. Like they are what you want to be. They're the apex predator. Mm-hmm. They're the best at what they do. No other animal can even touch them. Mm-hmm. So you're like, it's like seeing your idol face to face for the first time, but you're terrified of your idol. Because what are they going to do to me? Mm-hmm. Like, I've had situations with that you meet someone that you're really inspired by, and then they turn out to be an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> happens all the time. Seriously. So you're hoping that that shark is not an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. And fortunately for me, I've had that situation multiple times. And I've just been in awe, like, wow. That if, if I could be the ultimate hunter in the ocean, I'd be that white shark. And I just hope that my presence and aura in the water is that of a white shark. Because mm-hmm. then I've, I've made it. But I don't want him to be an asshole and come and mess with me. But if he does, I'm ready for it. You know, mm-hmm. I kind of know what they don't like. They don't like being watched. Being poked with broomsticks. Yeah. But like a mountain lion, they, they have a tough time attacking if they're being watched. Yeah. They just don't want to do it because they know the opportunity of them getting hurt is much higher. Mm-hmm. They, they attack by the element of surprise. And that's how a white shark behaves. And I think a mountain lion is a good comparison to a white shark. And I think that a brown bear or a grizzly bear would be a good comparison to a bull shark because they'll just stand up and like I'm here and then come running I'm at coming you. at you yeah, and that's what bull sharks really do. I didn't know that and then tiger sharks are more on the timid it's like a hippo they mm-hmm. want to come in like hiding behind you and act all docile and then boom hit you hard so yes. what about hammerheads wow I had a good well that's another good one I'm yeah. glad you mentioned that I was out at Cortez Bank it's this reef that's 100 miles off of San Diego in the middle of the ocean it's crazy to be spearfishing out there and I had what we called the hula skirt effect. You know, I had like three yellowtail on my belt and two bluefin, bluefin tuna on my stringer, like really? off my waist. Yeah. It's not a good idea to do that. <laughs> Probably the not. The boat was pretty far away. They were like a quarter mile away. I was diving on Peace, which is very similar to <clears throat> Conception, but it's a different company. Mm-hmm. Um, good captain on that boat too. And so I was like waving my gun, but the chase boat was helping some of the other people. I was the guide on that trip. And so I didn't want to take away from anyone else that needed assistance. So I figured, okay, well, the fish are schooling so heavily here. I'm going to get one more and I'm going to swim back. Because at that point, it gets hard to swim. I got to swim up current. And 
then the next thing I know, like the, the tuna are coming in, there's yellowtail and bluefin everywhere, and I'm all excited. I'm like, oh, this is epic. And then I'm getting tugged underwater. I'm like, what the heck? I thought it was a sea lion because I've had some pretty nasty encounters with bull sea lions that come in and just They're beat ruthless. You up. Yeah. yeah, they just drag you down if you've got that fish attached to you. Yeah. You're trying to get away from them and and they're so agile. But I turn around, it's a freaking hammerhead. How big? It's like maybe seven or eight feet, so it wasn't that big, but it's that's got a big hammerhead. Teeth, yeah, you know? yeah. And those teeth are like an inch from my butt, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and he's got a hold of this big yellowtail, and um, he's dragging me down, dragging me down, and he he, he releases and lunges forward for another bite, and I I kind of pulled away, and as I did that, my hula skirt, my stringer moved out, and he managed to get his tooth hung up on the spectra. Really? And it cut the spectra. So I didn't have monofilament or cable. It was just like kiteboarding line. Yeah. And and it all my fish just started going like in every direction. Just sinking down. And I was frantically, you know, diving down to try to get them. And every time I'd go down to get one, he'd bum rush me and then turn around. Really? And, like and, a false charge. Yeah. Like a, he just at the last second, he'd turn around because I'd look at him and, and I just couldn't gather any of my fish and he just kept coming after me and he wouldn't go eat the fish yeah it was bizarre it was like a territorial thing so i swam back to the boat he followed me all the way back that's crazy i came back with nothing <laughs> yeah except a hammerhead and then the chasing next year at the very same spot the guy had the same situation and he ended up in an air in a helicopter going back because it did bite his butt Pretty no bad. way yeah that's so, crazy yeah it, it can be dangerous but it was my fault you know i should have been a little bit more cautious like had I had at that time I didn't have a shark shield but had I had a shark shield that would have helped had I put the fish on my buoy and put a shark shield on the buoy that would have helped mm -hmm. had I called the chase boat and taken it back to the boat I had like five fish that were all bloody mm -hmm. you know it's a dinner <laughs> mill the shark didn't mean anything by it no he's just doing what he does he's a, exactly he was hunting for blood yeah and that's that's what I love about animals in nature is their their actions are honest Mm -hmm. And if their action is to bite you, it's just an honest action. There's no ulterior motives behind it. Yeah. It's not like people, you yeah. know, people will <laughs> screw you left and right. It's so terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so it's hard to find a good, a good person. It's hard yeah. to find a good friend. Yeah. It's hard to find a good hunting buddy. I can relate to all of that across the board, man. Yeah, I've had so many people that tried to be my friend mm -hmm. and then just like stole all my GPS marks. Yeah. Like, oh, you don't own the ocean. I'm like, yeah. But it's all public land, man. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, but I asked you, like, if you're going to go back to bring me, like, now you're going with 20 other guys, like, shooting everything Who's up. Who's going to go with 20 other guys? Who's going to go I with... Yeah. Like, I, I'm really conscientious about how I hunt. Okay. Yeah. So my spearfishing and my land hunting are the same. When I'm spearfishing, I don't like to find a good spot and just shoot the whole ecosystem there. Yeah. Take one fish. Okay. They don't remember that one fish, hopefully. Yeah. Take one and I leave the ecosystem pretty intact, I move to the next reef. Mm -hmm. That's why I love scouting, I love exploring because I find more areas. I'm not, the, the, I'm not just this big hammer impact on every reef that I go to. I just take one, I might paddle a mile away and take another one. Mm -hmm. And with hunting, I do the same thing. I try to pick the oldest mature animal that's probably gonna die within the next year or two and, and then that becomes my target animal. Yeah. And I think all the other animals are probably expecting him to die. Right. So. So have you ever done any like lobster diving in yeah. California? Oh man, that's that's pretty fun. Like from what I understand, lobster diving, and I don't know how much of it's up here, but I know there's a lot of it down south. What, how's that been? What's that like for you? Well, we actually have something better up here. Oh really? Yeah. 
we go diving for Dungeness crab, yeah, rock crab, yeah, um, sheep crab. We get in Monterey, and then we also have box crab, Puget Sound box crab. It's the most crab forward flavor mm-hmm. that you could imagine, and like their claws have like, I don't know, maybe an eighth of a pound of meat in one. It's crazy how no big they way. are. Yeah, no, there's a lot of that meat. sounds delicious. A, a box crab could be like seven pounds. Yeah. Five to seven pounds. So, so let's but, talk about crab diving. Yeah, that's what I do right here. I do it all the time. I just swim out and... Um, Instead of throwing pots. Yeah, I don't even... I don't waste my time with the pots. I just <laughs> I go diving. It's yeah. so fun. I'll get fish. Yeah. I get a good workout. And I get my crab. And so the the crab that I like is Dungeness crab locally here because it's pretty soft shell. I can crack it and get through it quickly. My, mm-hmm. my biggest pet peeve with crab is not being able to eat it fast enough. <laughs> right. Because the rock crab tastes good, but it's so much work. So I, that's the type of crab I want someone to you know, crack it for me. Yeah. Because their shells are hard, but they, they are delicious. So we go out and I, I like working the fringe of structure and sand. And in the wintertime, they're a little bit deeper, um, but you can always draw them in by dropping down a, a bait bag. Mm-hmm. And it's that's totally legal. You just drop down a car, you know, fish carcass or something. They'll come over and munch on it, and you just make dives. Maybe put like four or five of those, just like you would pots, but there's just no pot. Yeah. And then you just you go just from bag to bag, them. and you grab them and go. And then in the summertime, actually, all the crabs come into the shallows to spawn, mm-hmm. and the males will run around and find a female. They'll pick her up, and they'll run to a big rock. They like want to present to the world that they're going to make love to this other crab. And they sit there and they hold that crab mm-hmm. and they're just totally exposed. We don't have any otters up here. Otherwise, they'd be wiped out. <laughs> but they have me. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm up there with the otters. So You're otter-like. <laughs> yeah. So I come down. I don't eat them both. But I take the female. I let her go. It's legal to take females here. They just have to meet the minimum requirement size. Which are? I think it's five and three quarters, and then commercial six and a quarter. And there's a gauge. I just yeah, my gauge. It's a metal gauge. It's five and three quarters, but it's inside the two points of the carapace. Mm-hmm. And that's for Dungeness. Rock crab have to be four inches, and then Puget Sound rock crabs, they're not from the genius of cancer. So you just, you have to free dive. You can't get them on scuba. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't even know what sheep crab, if you can get, it, get them on scuba or we're free diving. We see a lot of them in Monterey when we're diving for halibut. And again, they, they like the edge of structure. Yeah. So... In the summertime, just right before the season closes down here, it closes on June 30th. Up north, it's July 30th. So if you're north of, of like, in your Mendocino County, you can get them later. So Noyo Harbor, great spot. You just swim out off the beach, and you can get fish. You can get crab. I, I found that spot just by going out for abalone. Um, but right there by the jetty, you just got to watch out for boat traffic. And then, um, you know, you can get 10 Dungeness crabs, and when you grab them, just pinch the pinchers. Just use your hands and push the pinchers to cross like an X. And it paralyzes them. Really? Yeah, so you can just go down and grab a couple of them. I've had times out here where it's like, there's so many crab, it looks like the bottom is moving. It's really? like biomass. A lot of smaller ones. It's like walking up on one of these Sonoma County pigs and it's just ticks. <laughs> yeah. Ticks just it's moving like everywhere. It's gross. It's like that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I love crab diving. I think it tastes really good. Mm-hmm. And we can get a lot of them. So I can go out every day and get my limit. Which is 10. It's 10. Yeah. Yeah. And then it obviously depends on the conditions, though. We have poor conditions up here. So that's what really keeps people out. But going south, um, as soon as you hit otters, then, okay, you're done with crab. Mm -hmm. Crabs are going to be like 300 feet. But otters can't, can't, don't want to go. Yeah. So harder to get crab. When guys fish for crab in Monterey, they're fishing deep. Oh, really? Because of the otters. So then 
after that, you know, you, you round the tip of Point Conception, now you're in lobster heaven. So that's kind of the defining line. There are lobsters up here. I've gotten them as far as right here. Right oh, wow. But it's rare. Um, and I don't know why they're there. They're great because they have no there. pinchers. Yeah, they're just spiny lobsters. They don't have any pinchers. They're all meat. Delicious. The heads are even good. You make, we make bisque with them. But yeah, Southern California, it's great. Um, the shore diving is phenomenal. If you know your little honey holes. Um, even the jetties, the breakwaters is really good. Again, mm-hmm. watching out for boat traffic. You know, paying attention to the tide, watching the visibility because if as things go up into the harbor and then they come back out, it can be dirtier. So on the outgoing tide, it's typically murkier. The ingoing tide's a little better. Mm-hmm. And then habitats, shipwrecks, it's all really fun. I love scuba diving for lobster. Well, for shipwrecks, though, you need to go through a special course, sort of, to be certified. Or you can go get because I, I know there's I know there's ship I know that there's shipwreck courses that you have, yeah because I have a buddy who's gone through a bunch of them. For scuba diving. Yeah, we don't we don't necessarily penetrate the wrecks. <coughs> These uh-huh. wrecks that we're diving are like dilapidated, just a bunch of scattered parts. And maybe there's one cavity that you could go into. Like at Cortez Bank, there's there's a shipwreck out there. I think it's called the Abalonia. And it's in like ten feet of water, but it, it descends down into like maybe thirty. And people will go and penetrate into that one. And that one, maybe you do want that course. But for the most part, you can work around the shipwreck not having to penetrate and still do pretty good. But um, we free dive in really shallow where the scuba divers would never want to go because they'd be flopping around in the surge and the eel grass and that's a really good spot to go for lobsters they have to be three and a quarter inches across their carapace so you put your gauge between their, their horns on the front and then you come to the, 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 the closest point on the convex of the back of their carapace and as long as it's bigger than that and the gauge either stands up vertically like tight, tight, tight or it's bigger, you're good. Mm-hmm. Um, but if there's any wiggle room, just just throw it back. So then, yeah, free diving is great. You could spend all day doing it. Um, you could have more time in the water, and then scuba is also fun. But you're going to be limited to that one hour or so that you have on the tank. Maybe you do two tanks. You yeah. Probably don't want to do more than three because all that residual nitrogen starts to feel pretty lethargic and tired. So we'll do spots along the coastline, hitting shipwrecks and habitats man-made habitats where they drop boulders and then all these jetties. Um, the natural habitat, you really got to know your spots. Like in Malibu, there's, there's pockets there where I have a couple holes that I'll go to and there'll be nice lobsters in there. But then the islands are really mm-hmm. where it's at, I think. And um, all the islands except for San Clemente, which is the furthest south one, have good-sized lobsters. San Clemente has a lot of them, but they're often small. Mm-hmm. But it's a good spot for spearfishing. Like yeah. Yellowtail, and that's where they're getting all the blue. Oh, fin really? Now is around there. Even yellowfin, they're getting. It's a good spot for halibut, white sea bass. It's good for a lot of things, but not really for lobsters. White sea bass get big, too. Yeah, yeah. I've gotten. My biggest one was 76 pounds. That's How far did that drag you? Oh, man. It, I had. At that time, I was using a gun without a reel. And mm-hmm. I just had a 75 foot float line. And, I almost watched the end of that float line go past me because I didn't have a buoy because I was going through the kelp. I'm like, oh, and I just grabbed on to the end of it and, and it took me, I don't know, maybe 75 feet through the kelp <laughs> underwater and I was holding my breath. So it was exciting. Yeah. And, and at that time, well, even today, that's still my biggest white sea bass. I've really? seen bigger, but I was fighting a fish when the bigger ones came in. Really? I was down in Mexico. My friend went down to take a shot, but he, he wasn't presented with the shot he felt comfortable with. So he did the right thing and he passed it, but... That one was over a hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but you know, with with, I think 
people are more cautious when they go into the shipwrecks, but when they go into caves, that's where people get careless. And those yeah. lobsters want to be in the tightest possible spot. So they'll be in there and, and maybe take off their tank, yeah. reaching in, trying to get the lobster. Um, we're good. So yeah, the, the, by the way, for those that are listening, um, here at my house and we've got some painters there's and stuff some painters around. going around <laughs> <laughs> so you might hear them talking or singing um my apologize no my they're good dude that, people deal with it um yeah this house needs to get done here before the rainy season comes seriously it's coming up so too. he had just walked in the room i told him to turn around and go back <laughs> <laughs> no, go away um yeah so there's been people that have gotten stuck in caves or they'll silt it up and then they don't find their way back out that can be pretty scary yeah but there's nothing better than seeing a giant, like, 10-pound lobster and getting your hands on it. And mm-hmm. they're pretty powerful. When they flap their tail, it can move you. Really? Yeah. No and way. It's so hard to hold on to. They have so much strength. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. Actually, one of my favorite memories uh, of lobster diving, I was on the Vision, which is the sister boat to the Conception that just burned down. Mm-hmm. And I was out there with the captain, and the captain and I were diving at Santa Barbara Island. There's the arches, this spot where there's like this beautiful light. I'll have to show you the photo that my friend Mike took of me there with, with the big lobsters, like a seven pounder. But it was way back in this hole and the captain was diving next to me. He was on scuba and at, at one point I was completely inside the hole, fins and everything like looped around, made a right hand turn and then squeezed up into this crack and then reached around. He was way back in this hole. Oh wow. And it took me a while to get back out. And like half the time, my mask would come off. You know, it was challenging diving. It was shallow. It was like 10 feet deep. But um, you had to go in there and spend a lot of time working on this lobster to tire him out. I asked the captain to spot me and just to keep an eye on me. I said, if, if I tap my heels together, pull me out. You know? mm-hmm. So he'd be down there on scuba looking in the hole at my heels. And the rest of me is like disappearing into the crack. And, and finally, after many attempts that lobster was just starting to let go. I could feel his legs getting tired and I was holding on to his, his, his antler horns, you know, the bases of those antlers and uh, of his antennas. And I was able to just yank him out. Mm-hmm. And I remember coming out and my mask didn't come off and he was just freaking out because it was like a two and a half minute dive. Oh, wow. He's like, I can't that's believe so crazy. Yeah. Lobster. So we got some photos that day. It was pretty cool. But that's, that's a dangerous thing to do, going deep into the holes. So the best way I think is going at night Mm-hmm. Lobsters are out. And they're just, coming out, chilling on the floor. Feeding. And then my my advice with the light would be only use as much light as you need. So if it's a clear day, go ahead and use a really powerful light. But if it's murky, don't use that same powerful light. Use a light that's not as strong because you don't need to see as far. Mm-hmm. You only need to see in front of you because they are sensitive to light. And when you see one, so if we're scanning with the light, always keep the light moving. When you pass over one, get the light off of them and then approach in the darkness. So sometimes I'll even turn the light and, and shine it towards myself and, and bury it in my side so there's no light coming out and I'll, I'll keep going in. And as I get closer, I'll bring that light from the edge and I'll put the edge of the light towards where I want his antennas to go. And then those antennas will start feeling at the edge of the light. Once those antennas are down, you have a clear shot for your hands to come in. Because really? typically they'll keep their antennas over their back. You go in to grab them, you touch the antennas, and, and they're you gone. slip right out. Yeah. They give you a slip on there. So yeah, you just get those antennas to lean forward and then come in. Never reach for the carapace, reach for the tail. Because as they move, 
they shoot into your hands a lot of times. Mm -hmm. If you grab the tail, you're good. If you grab the carapace, you're good. But I've had times where I've gone for the carapace and they just scoot it out the back. Really? It's fun. It's exciting. It's challenging. It's, um, it's like abalone diving, but you have a moving target. <laughs> so, and, and it's, you're not allowed to use any, anything to hook them, to net them. Yeah. You have to do it all with your hands here. Yeah. In Florida, you can, you can do it with a, a, net. a net or they have like a lasso that's on the end of a stick that they wrap around their tail and get them. Yeah. Like a, and then, or they'll use a tickle, snare. Tickle, it's like a snare. They'll use a tickle stick <clears throat> and they'll reach behind it and push them out. Um, they're also pretty easy to get with, with fish carcasses. So if you just, if you shoot a yellowtail, just drop your yellowtail down on your anchor. Mm -hmm. And after dinner, <laughs> do a quick dive and get a couple <laughs> desserts. <laughs> you know, the lobsters will just be sitting there munching on that. Or yeah. you'll have more a eel. Yeah. And those ones, oh, I've been bit by those. That's can be not fun. Pretty frightening. Yeah, All I those bet. All teeth are in there pointing back. Yeah, that'll wreck you. Yeah. So when are you going to start diving? Uh, when am I going to start diving again? When am I going to yeah. get back into when it? When are you going to get back into it? When? I'm, I'm honestly, I'm thinking it's probably going to happen this winter. Yeah. I'm going to really kind of start. November is my favorite time. To dive. to dive. See, that's the worst part about November is that's the big, the best elk hunting for me for rifle season rifle out of season. state. Well, December and January is good too. Yeah. You just got to look at the conditions yeah. and make sure it's calm. But the, the visibility is great. In well, I mean, and lobster opens up mid-October, if I remember correctly. I think lobster and, and well, sometimes crab. Sometimes it's in October. Sometimes it's in September. Uh-huh. It all depends. Yeah. So... Yeah, my lobster opener became less important as I got more into elk hunting. Because <laughs> right. like the end of September is like the glorious time for archery. Maybe that's what it is. Because a, a buddy of ours always used to come deer hunting with us every year. And then I think he did. He started missing opening weekends so he could go lobster diving instead of deer hunting. Right. So that's... That's what I think. Yeah, I think you're right. It's September for sure. One of my favorite days. You'd know better than I anyway. One of my so. favorite days where I got to do the best of both worlds. I was I was diving in Moss Landing. I was shooting halibut. Mm -hmm. Four in the morning. Went out by myself with my scuba tanks and my boat. And it just I needed to get it done, right? So I went out. I got two halibut. One dive. Loaded up the boat. Drove all the way up to Hollister. Hooked up with a friend of mine. And we went and we got... A deer and a pig. No way. In the, it was like all on the same day. We had the, the complete surf and turf. I yeah. had the halibut, and actually, I did get a few rockfish and lingcod too. Really? So it was just like we had this whole smorgasbord array of amazing. I was filleting fish and butchering deer pig and, and deer at yeah. the same time. You know, it was pretty. Wow, cool. that's crazy. Yeah. So, do you rifle hunt at all? Because you're you're a hunter as well on the mainland. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so it was interesting. I remember sitting down in Big Sur. I was on my kayak, and I remember looking up at those majestic mountains. I mean, they go straight up for like 2,000 feet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm really addicted to this diving. Like, it's, it's not even healthy how addicted I was. Yeah. I'm like, I can't go three days without being in the water. I'm like, I got to find a way out. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I was looking at the mountains, and I said, that's, that's going to be my way out. I'm, I'm going to hunt. I'm gonna hunt those mountains. And I started off actually hunting private land mm -hmm. and I was, you know, getting a lot of nice big yeah. fat deer and pigs and 
I said, well, I just don't know. Like, am I good at hunting or am I just shooting fish, you know, just these animals that are on private property? So I told my friend at that time, I said, I'm not going to hunt your place anymore. And he's like, what? I'm like, I'm going to go hunt public land. He's like, dude, you're you've fucking lost retarded. Your <laughs> you've thrown away a golden egg. And I'm like, yeah, I might have, but I appreciate what you've taught me. I'm, I'm switching gears. Yeah. And I remember I'd go down, I'd shoot a bunch of halibut or rockfish, and I'd have my cooler full, and I'd be in Big Sur, cooler full of fish, and I'd put on my camo, and I'd hike up these mountains. And, yeah, I ended up being archery? successful. No, with rifle. a rifle. Okay. I had no way I was thinking about archery. It wasn't yeah. even in my mind. It hadn't even before. happened yet. No. I mean, I thought, like, ah, it would be nice someday to do this archery thing. It's kind of like spearfishing, but I was like... I can't even get to 200 yards from these animals. Mm-hmm. How can I get to 20? Mm-hmm. And and so I went with a rifle and I was successful and I ended up bumping into an old friend, ended up meeting his son. We ended up becoming best friends in hunting and he had horses and mules. So we just started exploring all of Big Sur. Mm-hmm. The biggest pig I ever shot in my life was in Big Sur. It was like 400 pounds, public land. Wow. We did a lot of rifle hunting. Mm-hmm. And the last year I shot there was at 397 yards which for me was a long shot. I don't have any formal training in shooting. Yeah. And um, I, I think have, that's a poke for anybody. I don't have a fancy scope. Yeah. It's just a Leopold. I don't have a night force yet. I, I'm going to get something nicer eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, Maven was, makes really good glass. If you ever want to check their stuff out, let me know. Yeah, I've been looking at their stuff. And in fact, a friend of mine was asking if, like, what I recommended for, like, a good spotting scope. And I, I recommended Maven. Mm-hmm. Because I think they've got that same idea, similar to Kriyu, where it's direct to consumer. Yeah. Really good product. Good yeah. glass, no markup. Super crisp. Nice. It's super crisp. That's because I do a lot of video yep. for the Thule elk and, I mean, any, any wildlife I get on in the field. And it's actually been the best recorded footage I have gotten for any. Do they make scopes? Spotting scopes and rifle scopes and binoculars. Scopes. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah I'll look at it. So anyways, after that shot, I shot it in the neck, um, just died and on the steepest canyon from hell. <laughs> um, I shot across the canyon. And I said, I looked at my friend, and he was a, he's a really successful archery hunter, and I said, I'm ready. Mm-hmm. He's like, sweet. So I got a bow, and at that time it was a Hoyt, and I went and did some tree stand hunting locally here in like the Santa Cruz Mountains. Yeah. And uh, I got a fork and horn, and... I was hooked. Yeah. And after that, I really haven't done much with my rifle. And since then, I've shot a lot of big pigs. Um, I think a lot of people underestimate the excitement and fun of hunting California pigs, hogs, like big boars. Oh, yeah. It it can be a really fun. Well, it's so much different than hunting pigs almost anywhere else in the nation because we have such a diverse... um, amount of terrain that yeah, you can hunt it's, for it's mountains and hills and it's just so freaking cool and you have you have all year to hunt and in my opinion it's the best meat it's 365 i've been making prosciutto and <laughs> dude unbelievable yeah so delicious so for archery when you made the decision to to dive into archery did you end up finding a pro shop to use or did you just go to like a bass pro and get a bow yeah. over the counter or no, I, I got a used bow from a friend. I said, just get me something and whatever. Just get me something that works. I, I don't know. It was like yeah. the amount of knowledge that I needed was 
it was it was just too much. I was like, just just get me something, get me started. I eventually, I'll end up changing it. Yeah. And um, eventually, I ended up handing down that bow to another friend. It's still a great bow. Allowing them to and learn and understand yeah, what he's, archery he's is all about. Um, he's a spear fisherman that became a hunter, and he's harvested his first turkey this year. He was really stoked on it. With a bow? With my old bow. How cool is that? Yeah, that, the same bow that I shot my yeah. first deer with. Um, and then and I shot my first pig with it, and my first rabbit, mm-hmm. a bunch of things. And so um, I continued archery hunting and learning little bits, mostly through YouTube yeah. and through podcasts. Nobody in my family hunts. I'm the only one. So you're not even born into it. No. Right? And so for me, that's in the lines of talking about pro shops. Um, I work with West Coast Archery. Nice. And... and the ability that I've had to learn more information, have a better understanding of, you know, what my shortcomings are with archery, what I can do as far as working on my form, you know, or products that may, you know, switching my quivers or whatever it is. Going to a pro shop, I have found so beneficial and and so helpful. How do you pick the right guy in the pro shop? So... I mean, that's actually a really good question. And I appreciate yeah. that a lot, you know, because I've been to pro shops where everybody's a douchebag. And like, well, they might have an interest in like target archery, which may not correlate. Well, they're, so, they're, trad, they're into trad. So for, for me, like the, one of the biggest things when I've, when I first started looking into, you know, quote pro shops before I found West Coast Archery, I would go to these different spots and I would ask the guys, do you bow hunt? What do you bow hunt? What are you looking yeah. for? You know what I mean? And, and by probing people with questions like that, I was actually able to find a shop, which is West Coast Archery, where Hans, the owner, is a prolific hunter. He kills double digits of animals every year. He only hunts with his bow. Yeah, you gotta find the real hunter. You know, and, and he is. And you walk into the shop and Sure, he sells target bows and they have a target archery team that's professional. But if you look up on the walls, there's all different kinds of species of goats and deer and all different kinds of animals from Texas, Oregon, California, from all over the place because his passion is hunting and that's why he got into it. Yeah. Well, when I finally decided to buy a new bow, Mm -hmm. I did a lot of research. I figured out what I wanted and I walked into the shop. My shop is Predator's Archery in Gilroy. Yeah. Um, and I, I walked in and I, I've heard a lot of good things about that shop for yeah, sure. Curtis is a really nice guy. And, and I just, I work with Curtis and, and I went in, I said, Hey, I want to buy this bow. And I have five friends that want to buy the bow. Yeah. You know? And so we got a little bit of a discount for buying in bulk. Bulk. And, yeah, he's like, <laughs> we all, we all want to get into and archery. So we all got the same bow, which was pretty cool. Which kind of bow did you get? It was get? an elite 35. Okay. So it's a big giant bow, but it's so forgiving. Yeah. It's and so how weird. important is it to have that forgiveness in the field, especially probably yeah, like, with what sounds like might have been a bunch of new archers and maybe you had a little bit more experience or? No, actually, yeah, there was a couple of new guys, but there was also a couple of really seasoned it's, veteran yeah. veterans that were ready to just buy a good bow. And it, it's not the most expensive bow. It's a, it's a good bow. It's like right it's, around 850 yeah. I think, 800 bucks for yeah, the bare bones. And then we really bones. spent our money on the accessories, yeah. getting a good sight. Um, at that time, we got the Montana Black Gold, but then I've Dude, since Black then, Golds are dynamite. I've since then upgraded to the Spot Hog, the Hogget, mm-hmm. with the adjustable dovetail to go, you know, to really fine tune. Mm-hmm. And then um, we got the Hamski Hybrid, Hunter Hybrid, which is a really good um, rest. Yeah. And um, got the True Ball releases. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I went with the FMJs because of what I'm hunting. For your arrows. For my arrows. Do you know what your arrow overall weight is or do you not pay yeah, that it's much? It's over 320 grams, I believe, is what it is. And that includes your broadhead or without your broadhead? Field point. So yeah, 100, 100 grams when I weighed it. Yeah. I could be off on it. So I have a local friend that lives just right up the street from here. Yeah. And so he, since then, he's introduced me to just one of the coolest bows I've ever seen and, and played with. And it, it used to be known as TNT Archery. Uh-huh. They make this tiny bow that's 22 inches from cam to cam. Really? It looks like a toy. It looks like a joke. Like, are you kidding? Yeah. I'm not going to use that thing. And he's killing all these big animals. I'm like, you know what? All right. I'm ready. Let's try it. Girl, let's check I went this elk thing out. with him in Oregon. I got a big <clears throat> bull with my, with my elite. And uh, he's done well with that thing. And, and my friend, my other friend has since then started using him. He's making these bows, but just like five a year right now until he's ready to just upscale. And they're changing the name of the company and everything. I don't think I have the liberty to say much about it, but he's changed the cam design. And I'm IBOing at 285 with the Eastern Axis arrow. Mm-hmm. So a little bit lighter. But yeah, I've been, I've been killing some big pigs with it. Mm-hmm. And um, it's pretty exciting. It's, it's so small, I can just put it in my backpack. So when I'm working to help others hunt and I'm like the second shooter, I like carrying that bow because I can just put it over my backpack against my neck and I don't touch it. I just not like, even worry about it. Yeah, and it, 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 it's just the width of my shoulders so I can walk through the same bush, you know, the bushes and everything. <laughs> not getting caught up. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he kind of dials me in on my stuff. I'll go yeah. over there every season and eventually I want to get more meticulous with my gear the way I'm with spearfishing, dial in everything perfectly. Yeah, it sounds like your arrows might be like 320 with a 100 grain broadhead, so... Yeah. You know, you're probably shooting, I would I would assume, and I could be completely wrong, but it sounds like you're probably shooting right around 400 or 420 grams total there. weight. Yeah. So I shoot 70-pound draw, and uh, with the Eastern Axis, though, I, no, with the FMJ, mm-hmm. that aluminum jacket allows the arrow to pass through the animal better. There's no resistance. Yeah, you get, you get better penetration. It's smooth. Yeah. And because it's heavy, you get more penetration. Mm-hmm. And so on and a skinnier diameter. On the elk that I shot two years ago in Oregon, it is the weirdest story you've ever heard. Mm-hmm. I want to I want to tell you. Yeah, tell it. Um, so I'm getting ready to go elk hunting, and the day before I go, my truck gets broken into. Is this your first elk hunt? This is my first elk. Hunt. Okay, and your truck gets broken into. My truck into. gets broken into, and they break the window. They take my bugle. Uh, they take my cameras and they take my license. Like, what are they going to do with the bugle and my license? Yeah. They're going to go shoot a hunting film. So, anyways, I requested an extra day off of work. I ran up to Oregon before um, the weekend to get my tag, and I rolled into elk camp about four p.m. <laughs> and in every elk camp, there's the alpha male. Right, the one guy with the tattoos and the shirt off, just kind of <laughs> patrolling everything and making sure everyone's in their place. And uh, so I Im- immediately noticed that there's there's the alpha, okay, and, you know, doing the forming, storming, norming, performing whole deal, right? Yeah. Trying to figure out where my place is. I'm the greenhorn, right? So I roll in. I've, I've done a lot of practicing. Though. I went down to Hunter Liggett, which is a great place to p- practice. For a lot of opportunity calling. down there. I'm just calling. Yeah. It's not illegal to go call. Yeah. So I practiced my elk calling. I had like five bulls standing in front of me. And I'm like, I got it. 
you know, and got this really down. practice so much. Yeah. And so I was pretty confident in my calling. I was pretty confident in my calling or in my, in my shooting. So the, the alpha came up to me and he's like, Oh, you know, you must be Dan Solera. And I'm like, yeah, Hey, nice to meet you too, man. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like a little, you know, he's like, Oh, your friend said you just shot a big deer and a big pig. Well, I'm here to tell you that elk hunting's hard and you're probably not going to get anything. I said, Hey, that's fine. I have seven days off. I'm not complaining. Yeah. I said, however, I will tell you one thing. I'm confident in my shooting and I'm confident in my calling. He's like, how can you be confident in your calling? You've never elk hunted. I'm like, I practiced. I practiced and I've had the elk come to me. So I'm pretty comfortable with it. I know what I'm doing here, bud. Maybe I was being cocky. But maybe he was being a dick. I had just sent a text message to my buddy Michael saying, when I get there, we'll shoot a bull. Because mm-hmm. he was saying that they'd been hunting for 10 days and it was pretty hard and everyone was kind of doing their own thing. They weren't working as a team. I said, we'll get there and we'll shoot a bull. So we go up the first mountain we see and he cracks off a cow call and we get a bugle. We're like, whoa, there let's it is. do this. We're going to kill this bull. <laughs> we just like, that's how, that's how we were thinking. We're like, oh, we're just going to go kill this bull. Mm-hmm. And, and so then he's doing some calls with a primo call. It's kind of got a weaker sound to it. We drop down the can and say, okay, put that weak call away. I'm going to switch to the, the big bugle. Um, it's a mouth call from Rocky Mountain. So anyways, um, I'm using the Raging Bull. That's what it's called. And I'm going up the mountain doing some good lip ball and all the stuff that, you know, I'm really getting pissed off. And finally, I could see, he's just in the trees like 30 yards away from me and I get nestled back there and he's just raking away and I, I can't get a shot. And he steps out and I challenge call him and um, he makes the turn. He couldn't see me. He makes the turn right in front of the tree. I have no idea where my buddy is at this point. He's somewhere on the mountain and he cow calls as I'm at full draw. And so the elk looked away from me and I shot, my arrow went through him. It came out 30 yards away. It's with the FMJ. And then I'm freaking out. I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I, I just I'm shot not, an elk. My clothes aren't even dirty. I've only been <clears throat> an hour. Like I just drove straight from California to Oregon. And I shot a bull in the first hour. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is going to be great to tell the alpha male guy that I just killed <laughs> one. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait, 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 we got a cow call. That's what you do after you shoot an elk. So I'm cow calling and I hear some commotion on the other side of the trees. And then I hear my buddy playing his cow call like a kazoo, you know, just like playing music on the thing. I'm like, what is he doing? And I hear the elk crash and fall and die. So I walk over to him and he's holding a set of elk sheds. And I'm like, wow, dude, those are sweet. They're like identical to the bull I just saw. And he's like, I killed that bull. And I'm like, you shot the bull? He's like, I smoked him. I'm like, dude, congratulations. He's like, yeah, it was awesome. And then like a minute later, I was like, I shot a bull too. And he's like, wait, what? No way. <laughs> and I'm like. You guys doubled up? I'm like, you shot the bull I shot. He thought we got two. But I'm like, no, you shot the same bull, man. This is freaking crazy. It was oh, really? both of our first elk. Yeah. We both shot the same bull. Oh, really? And so we walked over. I said, okay, we got it. This has got to be authentic. You're going to hold my phone and I'm going to hold your phone. We're going to film each other going in. We're freaking out. We're walking up to this bull. It's a mature five by five, thick all the way through. I think mm-hmm. he's a good bull. And we get to him and, we're, and he's like, boom, right there. That's where I shot him. And I'm like, no, that's where I shot him. And he's like, well, what do you mean? No, you must have shot him on the other side. I'm like, no, he was facing... I shot him on the right side. He's like, well, I shot him on the right side. I go, dude, come on. I shot him. You shot. What is this? Yeah. I'm like, there's got to be another hole. 
Yeah. We flip them over, two exits. Really? One entry. Get the fuck out of here. Dude. Are you kidding me? It's crazy. I'm like, how could that happen? Like, you shot my hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and so then we there had was two exits and one entry. And one entry. Oh, my God. So his arrow was broken. Yeah. Half of it was inside. He was not using a decent accent. He was just using a gold tip. Mm-hmm. Hunter. And so you could see that even though he hit the same hole, he didn't get the penetration. Mine was 30 yards away mm-hmm. and covered in blood. Mm-hmm. So how could my arrow be covered in blood if I didn't shoot it? So yeah. we both shot it. We both hit the same entry, and we had a different exit. How insane. Yeah, and then we, we got on the radio. And, oh, you know, hey, talking to Alpha, not saying any names here. But Can you come over? Like, I, was, I saw something moving in the trees. I don't know what it was. I just shot it. He's like, what? You idiot. You probably shot a cow. I'm like, yeah, maybe a moo cow. And so then he came over and, you know, we are obviously just pulling his leg. Yeah, you're fucking right. He's like, what the fuck? He's so mad. <laughs> He's so pissed off. And um, Don't so be that guy. I, I felt pretty fortunate. We all butchered yeah. it up. Everyone helped. And that, that evening, I laid out all the meat and Ziploc bags all labeled in subprimals. And I said, I'm going to go up and make some phone calls. If you guys don't mind, like, just go ahead and divide the meat up into seven piles for everyone. Mm-hmm. And just take your pile and leave a pile for me. I don't. I won't know what I'm getting until I get home. Yeah. And when I got home, I realized I didn't have any back straps. So I called everyone else, and nobody else had any back straps. So the guy that was jealous ended up taking the back straps, leaving us with none. That's so rough. <laughs> I ended up finding out that he had been hunting there for three years and hadn't gotten a bull. So he was pretty he was pissed. Rightfully, that... rightfully jealous, but yeah. I don't know, man. Karma. I mean, for me, that uh, any time that we've gone on an elk hunt, no matter how big or how many hunters, we always, when it comes, a deer, sure, each person take their own deer. But when it comes to elk, you split the elk. And everybody usually just splits the elk into as many. It's so much meat. Yeah. I mean, I don't understand. Like last year, we had, we, had a, we had a full, we had a cow and a bull elk that we split between three guys. Yeah. And that's. That's a lot of meat. It's crazy <laughs> how much meat comes off of them. Yeah, it's I was cr- blown away. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm really excited this year. Actually, next week I'll be heading up to Oregon. But this time, instead of ho- hunting for Rocky Mountain, I'm going to hunt Roosevelt. Roosevelt. And I know that it's really hard. And this is 100% public. Thick country. Thick country, miserable. So yeah. I'm really not expecting a whole lot of success, but mm-hmm. I'm going to get after it. Yeah. So we'll see what happens. Hopefully I get one. And that rolls into your 2019 archery season that you had in the A zone. Yeah. And you killed a phenomenal buck this year. Yeah. That you'd watched. You kind of talked about it a little bit. Yeah. Well, the week before, I think it was a week or two before, I just killed a really nice pig too. Mm-hmm. With my bow. So what was that like for you? Which was one? that your first archery buck or no? No. no. Oh, okay. But it was my biggest. And it was the one that I have, I have obsessed over the most. And Boone and Crockett. Yeah. So how was that? What was that experience like for you? Um, it was pretty wild, you know. I mean, I I had the opportunity to shoot a pretty big four by four several times, but in my mind, this was the older buck, and he ended up being last year. He was a three by three with eye guards, um, good spread outside of his ears, really developed. All all tines were really long, and this year he sprouted a fourth. It was weird. It couldn't, didn't make sense um, on a buck that old. Mm-hmm. And so 
but I was still happy. I have an obsession with three by threes. I really yeah. think they define a blacktail. Mm-hmm. And um, I think when they switch to a four by four, they're more. It, it just reminds me more of a mule deer. Yeah. And so I just love three by threes. They've been my nemesis. I got one the year before um, that was also pretty nice, but a little bit short on the second time. And so I had had several opportunities to shoot this buck, but he was weird the way he would behave. He would always surround himself with a posse of like, it was like a security guards. Mm -hmm. And those deer were much younger. And so they were always alert. It was males and females, so bucks and does. And they would always pick up some kind of movement. And they would never really see me, but they would just start meandering away. And it was totally spot and stock, no tree stand, um, just seeing where they're at and trying to get in. Mm-hmm. And um, difficult country to get close to them. So finally, one day, uh, it was a foggy day. I was sitting down next to a poison oak bush. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I do get poison oak, but not as much since I do a lot of mushroom hunting in the off-season. That's my training. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we don't hunt for mushrooms. We go and pick them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't run away from us. But right. it's foraging, and it's, it's good training. So because I get poison oak during the off-season, I don't get it as much during the deer season, even though it's stronger. So anyways, I'm sitting next to this poison oak bush, and it was, I was tired. I had just driven all the way down to Paso Robles, picked up a boat the night before, and drove up. I only got two hours of sleep. And... Um, I was dozing off and I, I, I kind of woke up and I opened my eyes and there was five deer in front of me, like five feet from me. And just looking at me, it was crazy. And it was fawns and does. Mm-hmm. And the whole hillside exploded when I opened my eyes. I mean, they just took off and I'm like, oh, there's the, that's the end of my hunt. This is the last day of the archery season. Yeah. And I've got this house that I need to work on. I was like, ah, I should probably head home. I'm like, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna do this, I'm just gonna do a quick hike, one hour, come back, sit down, but this time I'm not gonna sit as close to that bush because it's too close to the trail. I'm gonna sit about 20 yards from the trail. And when I did so, um, I came back, I sat down, the fog had just started lifting, and as that fog was lifting, two forking horns came and passed right in front of me. Nice bucks, I mean, definitely uh, would have been respectable bucks. Good blacktails. Yeah, a couple years yeah. ago when I was, you know, just starting my out. Way up. Yeah. And so I was focused on them for a while, but then I started scanning in the peripheries and about three hundred yards away this deer was eating blackberries. I mean, he we found out later after I ever harvested him, uh, he didn't have any teeth. So I've never heard of a black tail that survived with no teeth, but I asked my taxidermist, Cha Lo, uh, from Stockton, I asked him if, if he could age my buck when I took it in to get taxiderm and he's like I can't. There's no teeth. There's no teeth to do the age. Yeah. And I was like, well, I have no, this is a really old buck. And so all he would do is eat blackberries during the summer. Mm-hmm. And then he would basically starve in the winter. Mush. Yeah. And it, he would burn up all his fat. So he was successful enough that he would do nothing. He'd do the least amount of work. And all, all his energy just went to fattening up for the winter. And mm-hmm. that's how he was able to survive. But I knew he was getting old and he might not make it the next year. So he's feeding on blackberries. The fog rises and he realizes he's alone. That's my thinking. Mm-hmm. His, his friends are on my right. He's on my left. And he just stuck his head down and ran 300 yards without stopping. And he came past that poison oak bush. I had already ranged it. It was 20 yards. I gave it a little bleep. Merrick mm-hmm. stopped, looked at me, and I was just sent totally it. ready. <laughs> just sent it. I wanted him to just hit the ground, so yeah. I went for a slightly higher shot, ended up hitting his spine, Yeah, and I knocked another arrow, he tried to get up, 
just with his front legs, and I punched through his heart on the second shot, and he mm-hmm. died within a few seconds. And I remember um, kind of gone through some other things in my life that had made this hunt a little bit more emotional for me. And I remember sitting back and being so excited. I just I had that moment where I realized, you know, this is the fog was lifting. The fog was lifting. The sun was coming in, and it's just heaven on earth. And and maybe we are the lucky ones. Maybe we are. Maybe this is our heaven. Yeah. You know, and it was just a beautiful moment. And um, it was the biggest deer I've killed with a bow or with a rifle. How cool is that? Yeah, and really, really tasty. (laughs) (laughs) He was blackberry fed, man. Yeah. I opened his belly up, it was just like a blackberry pie. How cool. Yeah. So I think that venison uh, tastes a lot like the environment, which you're getting them in so what they eat you know if they're eating sagebrush the meat's a little bit stronger Mm -hmm. versus if they're eating fruit and so I really do like finding spots where I mean ultimately the reason why I hunt the reason why I spearfish is because I like to eat I like to cook Mm -hmm. I've been to all these countries I've learned so many recipes you name it so much amazing cooking yeah yeah and they're like, man, in China, they'll cook bamboo and make it taste delicious. And they totally do. Yeah. I mean, All they've day. gone through the through a pretty bad cultural revolution, and it's a communist country. And there was a time not that long ago where they didn't have anything to eat. And they had to be pretty creative. And Eating bamboo is creative. Yeah. It's, it's really creative and, and fermenting things, mm-hmm. making things last. So yeah, I, I'm able to come home and do all these different fusion recipes, but incorporating love, wild game and sea. It's the best. Yeah. Like oftentimes people will tell me, and I, I'm sure a lot of people will argue this on the podcast saying that big pigs taste bad. Mm-hmm. I completely disagree. I haven't had a big pig taste bad no, yet. No, they're full of fat. Mm-hmm. They're delicious. But the problem is they're more work to butcher. Yeah. It's hard. They're heavy. And if you're going to drag it out of the mountain, it's going to be spo- like pork spoils in an hour. Yeah. Like I wouldn't eat a piece of pork if you threw it on my driveway and left it there for an hour. It's like nasty. <laughs> That's good. So with pork, you've got to be prepared with ice, coolers, and the ability to butcher on the field, get it in your pack. And get I it cooled off. ice packs that you, you know, you take them to soccer games or whatever. Yeah. And you just you break. I, I keep two of those in my 5200 in my Kuyu pack. Mm-hmm. And when I shoot an animal... If I'm going to get it to ice that day, it's going right into Ziploc bags already labeled, you know. I already know how many bags I need for a pig. I take two two-gallon bags and 14-gallon bags and one garbage bag. Mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, when I pull that animal off, I'm going to get from my back legs, I'm going to get my top round, bottom round, eye round, sirloin tip, and sirloin rump. And then my osabuco, the shanks. Same with the front leg, I've got my shanks. I typically blade out the meat off the front shoulders. Then I've got my ribs. Um, depending on how far I have to go, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just take the meat off of it. But a lot of times I try to bring them for the Traeger. And then, you know, your back straps and tenderloins. And then mm-hmm. depending on where you've shot it, maybe you've got neck meat or maybe shoulder meat. I recently, the last pig I shot, I shot in the neck with my bow. Mm-hmm. Dude, that is a lethal shot. <laughs> it's crazy. I mean, the blood was just spraying all over the mountain and yeah. right through the jugular. You basically go from the same pocket on the shoulder, behind the shoulder, and you just go in front of the shoulder, mm-hmm. and it's deadly. Cuts that jugular. Yeah, man. I mean, it was yeah. no damage to me. 
At all. At all. It's crazy how bows are damaging meat these days, arrow impact. Yeah. You know, because I remember when I started archery hunting, I'd hit it with my Thunderhead broadhead and it'd pass through and be a perfect X with no bloodshot meat whatsoever. And now more and more in the faster and faster these bows are getting impact is always leaving bloodshot meat. Not as much as a rifle, but it's leaving bloodshot meat. Well, like I don't know what your preference (coughs) is, but um, through my research and experience now hunting and shooting a lot of animals for the large game, so elk and um, hogs, I really do like the slick trip Viper trick. Mm-hmm. It's small and it's got great penetration, but I've tried it on deer and it just like vanishes out the other side. Mm-hmm. It's too much penetration. So I switched to the grave digger on that and it's so freaking sharp. And I, I do like the chisel tip because yeah. it breaks bone and then you've got that one fixed blade yeah. and then the two expandables. And I rarely have full pass throughs, but it gets to the hide on the other side. Mm-hmm. So it works good for deer. I'll have to check that out. I run, uh, I've used Rage for, I don't know how long. Yeah. Probably for five or six years. My first deer was with the Rage. Yeah, and I, I they just switched to a no collar system. Okay. Or they cool. came out with a no collar system. Yep. And uh, it locks in place really well, and mm-hmm. it and it'll hold its lock really well. And so, well. what's your experience shooting those through like brush or debris? Are you having deployment? So this is the first year I've done it. And Got it. I shot my buck, and my buck died in less than a hundred yards. So a lot of times when we're hunting pigs, they're, they're short, you know. Yeah. And they're always you need to hit through grass. And, and so if you use expandables on them, I find that they open. Oh really? You get deflection. Yeah. So the grave digger, you can tighten it down with an Allen key, but I just switched to fixed. Mm-hmm. It just works for better pigs. for pigs. Yeah. And for elk, in some states, you have to use fixed. Like Oregon is fixed so only. I'm already on that program. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think they, they uh, West Coast just started carrying iron wheels, and those are supposed to be really good as far as, there's always going to be fine-tuning with fixed blades, but as far as ending up right where your field point is at, with minimal fine-tuning, the iron yeah. wheels. I've never had to sign in <coughs> my broadheads. Really? Yeah, they shoot. never had to do fine tune. No, they just shoot oh, that's the same great. as my field tips. As long as with, as long as they're indexed with my top fletch, and I'm three, I use three fletchings. Mm-hmm. Never had an issue. Really? When I've tried it, it's been it just shoots exactly where yeah. I'm shooting my field tips. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you can't beat that. No, I mean, again, thank God to YouTube. I think YouTube and podcasts are great for someone like me that doesn't have the mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a lot and I can learn a lot from a lot of people mm-hmm. and I can filter through the bullshit. And so I was able to finally find a good resource on YouTube where they did test a lot of the broadheads and they were they were top performers. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's crazy. In accuracy and penetration. Yeah. So wrapping up, mm-hmm. um, how can people look you up? You have a YouTube, you have an Instagram, yeah, and I, I'm, I love helping new divers, so, you know, don't be... Full circle back to diving. Yeah, yeah. so if there's hunters out there or people that are listening to this podcast and they, they're interested in getting into diving or they've been doing it for 20 years and they just have some questions, um, you know, reach out to me. Um, you can go to my website, which is spearfishingisnotacrime.com. Mm-hmm. 
You can also find me on, so on that website, you'll find articles and videos and my contact information. Mm -hmm. But you can also find me on Instagram. Mm -hmm. Just type in the handle at freedivingdan. So that's F-R-E-E-D-I-V-I-N-G-D-A-N. And that's a great way to get a hold of me and message me. You can follow there. And then also on Facebook, just my name. Dan Silvera, last name S I L V E I R A, and um, yeah, I'm I'm stoked to help people get into the sport or to advance. Um, it's nice to see people accomplish their goals and yeah. dreams. Absolutely, I can relate to that through you know going out with new hunters and taking people hunting. And that's something that like a lot of people look at my page and say, well. Dan's just killing all these big fish. I get just as much satisfaction as going out and just shooting like a couple rubber lip perch. You know, they're like just simple fish. Like I love it because again, when I put it on the plate, nobody knows what it is. They're just like, wow, this is delicious. It doesn't matter if it's a two pound fish or a two pound fish. Well, it's where food's the gateway drug, you know, for conservation and for saving our ways of life, you know, spear fishing and hunting. Yeah, and there's no better way to do it. Food is going to be our catalyst yeah there's no better way to define a person than by looking at what they what they eat mm-hmm. you know a lot about a person through their food yeah and um, yeah so just I guess for everyone that's out there hopefully this podcast has been enjoyable informational and, <laughs> and if there's something I missed or a question that you have you know reach out to me and hopefully the audio quality is better <laughs> right <laughs> Yeah, so cool, man. Well, I appreciate you having me. This is my first podcast. I've cool. never done a podcast. Oh, good. <laughs> and I have some peak refuel meals for you to take up to Oregon. When you go to Oregon, you're going on an elk hunt. So I got a breakfast and a dinner for you to take up and try out. You know, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Nice. Well, it's a good trade since I just handed you some smoked albacore. I know. I'm really, I'm going to take this home. I'm going to actually, I'll stop by my parents' house on my way home. And by the way, and for, eat it with my dad. listeners out there, um, I gave him. A smoked albacore collar. Yeah. It's appalling to me the amount of waste that people have with food. Mm-hmm. And the, the head, I grilled all the heads. We had 61 albacore. I got nine pounds oh of meat God. off of 61 heads. Yeah. And the meat in the head is really delicious. It's, it's tender, rich. It's, it's like really juicy. Yeah. And then the collars, I smoked them. Mm-hmm. And then all the trimming pieces that I had, I jarred them. Mm-hmm. And so we're able to utilize the whole entire fish. Fish, and, and if I could have, I would have brought home the carcasses and smoked those. You take all the meat off the carcass, mix it with cream yeah. cheese. I mean, you know, and one of my buddies, he grows a lot of plants, and carcasses for him are like gold because yep. he literally lines his garden beds yep. with carcasses. And the Indians were onto something with that one because his plants are, you know, fifteen feet tall and you know phenomenal yeah, amazing it's really plants. Good nutrition not only for us but for the ground yeah, yeah for the earth for sure so i'm i'm curious you know what you think of the collar i personally think it tastes better than the smoked wines yeah it's juicier yeah more flavor i'll let you know later today right on right on man well thank you very much thank you thanks for tuning into the show folks If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguy.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. 
You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website, Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the flip flop guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.